on this week's The Koi Gig Podcast, we had an exclusive interview with Manchester United's owner Barrier. With those crowds and that pressure, I just love it. Listen now and make sure you subscribe to The Koi Gig Podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. OTB AM with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon Night Edition, available now. You are very welcome along. It is Thursday morning, the 25th of May. It is half past seven. You're very welcome along to OTB AM. We're here every morning with the Sports Breakfast Show from Off the Ball. Uh, you can get us on your radio if you want, as long as it's a smart speaker. Just um, tell your radio to play OTB Sports Radio, and lo and behold, we will be in your earballs. Uh, filling those earballs this morning, Shane Hannon. Gillich, good morning. How are things? Yeah, pretty good. And also, uh, Colin. Sure, and Shane. Simply the best. Better than all the rest. Oh. That was really sad, wasn't it? Yeah. What was your What was your What was your first when you what was the first thought thing? she was already dead? Oh no, number one. I mean, somebody like Tina Turner, you're going to know when they die. Mm. I thought I, I thought she was uh, I thought she had gone, and then I realised, gee, I couldn't believe she's that old. I couldn't believe yeah. she had been around for that long. So you both couldn't believe that she wasn't already dead, and you couldn't no, believe no. how old she was. No, no. Somebody like Tina Turner, when they die, you're going to know. Yeah. Well, I, I got a media push notification. Yeah, immediately. Exactly. exactly. You can't think, I thought you were dead already. That's terrible. I thought she had gone about a decade ago. What? But I still be singing her songs, like paying tribute to her every day, unofficially. I do think, uh, for people of a certain age, though, it kind of got ruined a little bit by David Brent. My first reaction was David Brent doing the dance at the, at the top of the class going to watch to I which for, song I oh he's just simply the best I forgot oh. he uh, used that dances song. in and then he comes back in <laughs> don't turn it off what's love got to do with it? a better song anyway um, my own personal opinion she's, she's big at weddings her songs yeah 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 they it all the time she, she, I, I associate her with the 90s growing up she was constantly on the radio she was Con- constantly on the car radio like the most played artist from my childhood right mm. yeah I mean, every I'm, time maybe it was a Cork thing but uh, every time I was in the car, Tina was singing to me. Right. Listening to our friends in Red FM, which didn't, I don't think existed in the 90s, did it? Uh, it didn't, no. no. The other station. Right. Yeah. Shall, shall remain nameless. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, Proud Mary is the song, I'm told. Uh, Proud Mary is not her song, right? But it, her cover is the most famous. Is it? Jojo's nodding along here. Okay. Uh, well, share, share your Tina memories in the, in the comments. I do have a proposal, right? So next week... There's not that much on midweek. There's loads of, there's loads of bits and pieces and we'll obviously cover whatever happens. In the Probably week. final, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Uh, but uh, how about we dedicate either next Monday or next Tuesday to a succession finale? Mm. Oh. Because oh. I've got a confession to make here, right? I watched zero minutes of the game last night because I'd missed, I'd been travelling during the week and we had to catch up. And last night's episode, this week's Monday's episode, was like an hour and 20 minutes. Next week is an hour and 47 minutes. I've already checked. Uh, yeah. So was the football good? I don't know. I did both. Uh, yeah, well, let's say, uh, you know, both. fair play to you. You must have got it in early. We had to put the kids to bed and then it's like, I mean, I can I can do my job here or I can watch Succession. So look, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, everybody. I realise, grossly unprofessional. But come on, I saw, I saw the teams. Ferguson wasn't starting. You should have watched it. it Pep didn't game. even take it as seriously as I did. I, uh, I have some catching up to do. I, I watched episode two of the final season last night. Well, then but you're, I, you're out next week. But right? No, no, I, don't worry. I can I can do that. I'm well up That's to I'm well up to speed. Well, well, sorry, we have to. This is a this is a democracy. 
the viewers have to decide what they want. You can tune in, you can not tune in if you're not behind. But we're giving you plenty of notice, a full week to catch up, buddies. Why are you suggesting Monday or Wednesday? Well, what's happening Tuesday? I said Tuesday or Wednesday. You said Monday or Wednesday? Can't be Monday. Exactly, can't be Monday. But I said Tuesday or Wednesday. You said Monday or Wednesday. Oh, just stop. <sighs> <laughs> wow. Um, um, anyway, I'm, uh, I'm happy to do it. To I'm happy to do it. Kids. This is amazing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it happens surprisingly a lot. You see, you see money and win. These are like children. Anywho, what do you think, folks? Uh, <laughs> tell us yes or no and give us some reasons. As in, dedicate the entire show to it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think to we're going to need, need some guests. Soon after, we won't. <laughs> we won't. Uh, I'm happy to do that, Jet. But I guess we'd have to get a spoiler, constantly spoiler alert up on the YouTube comments and across our social so people can tune out if they want. Because yeah. a lot of people want to see this. We're going to get it's slaughtered. We're going to get slaughtered. Well, that's what I'm saying. You're given advance notice yeah, and fair. everybody's given the opportunity. But like, this will be the first place we get the opportunity to do it. And we have to decide if it like, you know. Spectre Corps ruled out. She's only on episode five of the last season. Ah, you'll catch up in the meeting. In the meeting. I'm, I guarantee I'll catch up. Uh, how many episodes are there? There's nine out. So this, this weekend is ten. Tenth, yeah. That's easily catch up. If it's a word. Which it isn't. But uh, I can do it. Right. Okay. Uh, let's move on. Here's what's coming up on the show today. There will be no talk. We are, we're banning talk. Uh, Vinnie Perth's going to join us in studio at 8 o'clock. We're talking with Jen Hogan and Port MacDonald about the GA issuing a letter to remind everybody about their rules about uh, non-competitive up to under 12. We've got Liam Griffin talking about Apocalypse Now for Wexford Hurling. Andy Mitten is going to do his You Had to Be There. Very interesting choices. And uh, some football show goodness to play us out. <laughs> Slaney Sliders, you could say, about Wexford. Hey. I just thought of that there now. Did you just think of that Legitimately there just there now. Right. So, it's I probably better out there. Let I us know. I don't believe him. I think he's working <laughs> on that for weeks. Yellow bellies. We'll need a new uh, vision mixer for this succession talk. Oh, why? Because Emma has said no spiders. You don't need to get a replacement. Next week. Why, what, what season are you on? I think, no, this is Emma now. Yeah. I, think, uh, I think Emma has waited for, she's typing here, but I think she's waited to watch all of season four when it's done. Well, yeah. we, now, now's the time you In can catch up watching. you can catch up because it's, it's done next week by the time you get to the final episode it'll be done How, where does it rank for you in all time have to wait and see what happens sure, it's, yeah, it's sure, not over sure, it's too yeah, early yeah. to say Yeah, like you need a Breaking Bad sort of end where everything is literally chef's kiss uh, just to really complete it I think Breaking Bad fell apart a little bit in the last oh dear oh I think, I think the same of uh, controversial became, uh, became a little bit um, ready for it to be done now Breaking Bad's finale is, is all time great finale stuff is it yeah, I mean P- people please let him know in the comments I haven't watched it back I, 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 have to watch I, it I had no instinct to watch it back afterwards um, it was, look it was very good over a long period of time hmm. but I think it kind of fell apart a little bit at the end yeah I think um, I think Succession has run its course now I'm waiting for I'm just waiting for the ending because at this stage now I'm, I'm not giving anything away no by what I'm about you, to say you, but you, I, don't, yeah. I don't I don't care who comes out on top okay okay that's enough <laughs> I mean that's a spoiler it's not a spoiler at all it is, it's I mean it's the whole premise of the whole show it's a spoiler it's a succession who is going to succeed <laughs> um, but look the actual match last night was a lot better than I envisioned you said it was great yeah, it was great. Yeah. It was brilliant. Yeah, it was okay. end to end. Very good. Last day <clears> of school <throat> feeling. Well, Pep doesn't know what he's doing though. He picked some players. You know, <laughs> took a big um, risk. No, it was it was it was really good. Um, and Cecil's goal 
half. Tell us about Evan Ferguson first, because that's the... the well, that's he didn't start, as you said. Yeah. Came on in the 52nd minute for Cecil, who was quite happy to come off after that goal. It's like, not going to get better than that. And then three minutes later, nearly scored Ferguson and a snapshot with his right foot, uh, which keeper saved at the near post. And was uh, generally very good throughout, like, hold-up play. Just did nothing special. It's, as often is the case with Ferguson, he doesn't um, wow you with his silky play or anything, but he's just very, very good at what he does. And uh, his back-to-goal play was very solid. Every time he picked up the ball with his back-to-goal, he found a teammate. Um, he actually wasn't so good at that when he came on against Newcastle last time. Mm. But much better this time around. Disappointing that he didn't start, but yeah, he was very good when he came on. But like, overall, it was just an excellent Brighton display, and it's their best ever season. Last season, they finished ninth, which was an all-timer for them. It's better again this time around. And with that result, the one point gained, they've qualified for next season's Europa League with a game to spare. What a job. Roberto De Zermi's done yeah pretty good and also look it's you know everybody in Ireland's unofficial second team or most people's anyway because of Ferguson but while we're watching him we're watching all of his teammates and so many likeable brilliant young players mostly in Cecil and Tony Bloom as well is quite likeable himself and De Zerbi having a little moment his PR has uh, gone through the roof in 2023 he was in Cheltenham as well he was prominent there he did very mm-hmm. well at Cheltenham and uh, you're seeing him more and more on camera and Cecil a teenager as well yeah, extremely young. Um, 19, I think, yeah. What a goal. And there was that sight of the Manchester City supporter behind the goal, oh. applauding before it went in, the goal. Oof. Yeah. It's one of the... Yeah. It's the goal of the season, isn't it? Well, I forgot about the Chelsea goal, which is, has pop, popped up, where it's basically from the same distance, and it's in the other corner. Mm. As my housemate said, you could have had two goalkeepers in goal, and they still wouldn't have stopped it. <laughs> <laughs> But that's the that's the definition of a goal of the season contender. Has to, it has to have had. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, usually because I shot from distance. Sorry, I've only seen the angle from the side where you can actually see the full distance. It is fully 30 yards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Probably and the distance to the goal is, is further because it's kind of... The slow-mo from his point of view <coughs> is the great angle of the fans. I actually yeah. do love that when... Because um, all the fans behind the goal were Man City. So obviously it was pretty much still people when they went yeah, in. Yeah, that, yeah. And you can see the smattering of applause throughout... Oh, which I love that when you, when a goal is so good that fans just can't help themselves yeah I think because they've already won the league they're happy to oh be. totally I mean I was thinking that exact thing when the fan is applauding he was like he's nothing to lose here but like some of the great goals in history for me stand out because the opposition fans can't help themselves and appreciate it like Matt Letizia at Ewood Park when he goes around a few players and puts it in over Tim Flowers hits the towel have you ever done that in. have you ever clapped an opposition a lot of uh, applauding behind the goal mm. from the Blackburn fans what? have you ever done that like clapped an opposition moment or player or, or I think a lot of Tyrone fans around me clapped Conor McManus's point that time from the sideline that oh, one outrageous point right. one or two um, it's not like them in fairness no it's not I was at the Manchester Derby 2003 with my father and United won 3-1 Sean Wright Phillips scored for Man City a screamer from distance mm. and Billy Bowie jumped up did he? among the United fans right what a goal yeah Ronaldo, Brazilian Ronaldo was clapped at Old Trafford, I think, by the United fans yeah, at that time. Were, he thought they were uh, mocking him as well. He didn't, uh, he didn't reciprocate because he thought they, he was a bit of a joke figure at that stage. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've, I've played in games where the opposition has scored and I thought to myself, geez, what I thought you were going to say and been clapped. What a goal that was, but you, you avoid the physical applauding mm. of it. You could take it off yourself. But uh, no, it was up there with one of the better strikes of the season and also not too surprising because, like you said already, the Chelsea goal at Stamford Bridge, he has that in him. But they're just, uh, they're just littered with quality throughout. And Matoma's one of the players of the season. Like, And yeah, actually, Ferguson spoke glowingly about Matoma. They can keep those three, obviously, and they'll 
they've got the new signing coming in, who's again very young, and all of a sudden they're going to be one of the most exciting young teams. Now, you need some steel, and you need, like, for the hard role that they have, maybe the maybe Zerbi has enough steel. Mm. And the, signings, the other signings they make with whatever money they have and available transfer spends. You'd uh, expect them to. Yeah. They certainly make good signings. Alexis McAllister very much looked like a man waving goodbye last night. Um, looks like that deal is essentially done to Liverpool. But um, it's all it's all up. Freed from Desire comes on last night. Sweet Caroline comes on last night, and they're all feeling themselves. Uh, and why wouldn't they be? Uh, Pep was a little bit feisty during the match at one point. The Haaland goal that was not disallowed by VAR, and and rightly so. I mean, Haaland just fouls the defender completely. Um, but Pep gets his yellow card for manhandling the. Oh, did he get a yellow card? Get the yellow card. Oh, yeah. Nice. He mm. kind of grabs the linesman and pushes him out of his way. Oh. Oh, can't be doing that now, Pep. No, no, no. And then he said, started to say sorry, but as the referee was walking away after him saying sorry, he started saying more to the referee. It was just like, he's asking to be sent off here. Um, but as you say, he's probably just trying to feel more alive. Would that ban have made him... wouldn't have applied to the FA Cup final, would it? Ooh. We, uh, Not sure. Good question. Two yellows maybe wouldn't be the same as a red. What actually got last and last night too was uh, Danny Welbeck hitting the bar with a superb free kick just before Phil Foden opened the scoring for City. Mm. Um, Do City play their big guns at Brentford in the last game? It depends on, on what the sports science says about their conditioning, right? Like, yeah. uh, Colo Turi was on the punditry last night. He said they should play, go all out. These lads need to be kept fresh and consistently playing. Well, I don't know if you remember the Champions League final between Spurs and Liverpool. It was such a terrible game because nobody played any football for about two and a half weeks. Yeah, that was unfair. Yeah. And they'd come I think it was three weeks. It was longer. Was it? Like, yeah. yeah, it was three really um, And obviously Harry Kane was unfit, so that was his problem. Mm-hmm. But. Um, uh, well, Colm surely wants a Chelsea win tonight for a bit more excitement on the final day on Sunday says Kenny he does he does he said that earlier yeah yeah. well if United get a point tonight they secure Champions League football and that's that done for the last day of the season so then the only thing to play for and it's very significant is uh, two of the three relegation places which is class actually that's gone down to that and all three teams involved Everton, Leicester and Leeds are all at home in the last day but yeah I wouldn't mind like a Chelsea win at Old Trafford they always seem to play each other at this time of year at Old Trafford United Chelsea. Uh, if they win, I think it's extremely unlikely. Is Mason Mount worth £60 million? No, I don't think so. And are you delighted that you're, as Manchester United fans here, that Mason Mount is like the prized assets that the best clubs in Europe are fighting over? Because it feels a little bit like the Mason Mount hype was wrong and that but in his, today's market, his moment has passed. He's worth £60 million in today's market. Is he good enough to play for Manchester United's first team? Yeah, he is. That Definitely. That, that's the, I would say yes, but I wouldn't Set be too excited about it. Um, Ericsson? Probably instead of Ericsson. Ericsson can only last an hour in games at the moment. No, I mean, the first 11 is fluid, like so many games in the season. So you can come in and out, play three quarters, start three quarters of the game. But the big game, the big game. So when yeah, you're, when yeah, it depends on the opposition, but definitely, yeah. You could play him in a three in midfield or you can play him out wide in one of the two mm. roles behind the striker. He's pretty flexible. That's the thing about Mount. I think he's a bit of a manager's dream. Well, that's, that all, we, that's all we keep getting told. Because yeah. he, did, he did what Frank Lampard told him to do. And then... And then he played for England for a while and they weren't very good and then he came out of the team and they got better. Same with Thomas Tuchel. He did what Tuchel wanted who would be tactically fairly advanced mm. and I think the big plus point about Mount is he understands exactly what managers want from him which isn't the case for a lot of players. So that's why he plays so much and the reason he's on in the team so much this season he's had in this contract dispute. Um, I would take him at United but I wouldn't he's be not, too excited. He's, he's not in the team this season because they can't find room for him. It's not because of the contract dispute. Like that's you, one of the reasons. It's not though. Because you, why, why would you not play a player who you're paying because he hasn't signed a new deal for the year after next? 
What's the reason to stop you playing him? Well, they have so many players that they could just pick someone else. Yeah, so they don't and think then, he's are good enough. Are you going to sign or not? Yeah, I mean, I look, that's the... When, even when he was um, central to everything Chelsea were doing, and England as well, I always thought he was good, like very good player, very neat and tidy. But is it not mad that he's involved? Become, but I didn't think he was brilliant ever. Like he's become, oh, everybody wants him. He's, it makes him mad, everybody wants him. I'm like, do they really? Is that not like, you're, are you not spending a massive amount of money and massive amount of wages because you spend a massive amount of money because he's English and actually... He's grand. Makes him out as grand. I put him, I put him above grand. Yeah. Okay, but like he's not in the Chelsea team who are not in the top 10 in the league at the moment. He can't nail down a place against like several other players. Yeah, but that's what I'm saying. I would take him without being too excited about it. You know, that would be the category he'd fall into. So he, um, he, he, he like, and he also in like the modern game, so yeah. many games a season. I get so he's, many games. He's a, he's a he's a good player to have. He's like a he's in your first fourteen, if you like. Do you know, he's going to start a lot of games. Or if, he, or if he's on the bench, you bring him on like an upgrade on Marcel Sabitzer. Mm. You know, that would be kind of where you put him. And and also, you kind of forget a bit about him because he really hasn't played an awful lot. And if we had this conversation maybe two years ago, you'd be a bit more excited because he was playing. And he's the type of player who can contribute maybe 10 goals a season in all competitions and 15 assists. So he's racking up. Well, that's quite high. He, he might be like a 10 to 12 point player a season. So then you say 60 million pounds for that and that 10 to 12 points gets you in a higher European competition or a higher Premier League place. It's worth the investment. So basically... Not to get massively excited about. Jaden Sancho should have been. I was just going to bring up Sancho. Is I mean... That, oh, well, right. Sancho was uh, way higher expectations because of the fee. That's higher again. Well, I think if and got, also he was seen as a game changer. Well, if you've got 10 goals a season mm. out of Sancho and 15 assists, that's a lot. I think you're overrating Mason Mount here. I'm saying in all competitions now, not just the Premier League. I think okay. the, the expectations for, for Mount will be fairly low considering he is English. Like, 60 million. The, the, hype, the hype should be much higher because he's English, but it's not actually that high because... I thought you were joking there. No, genuinely. Uh, like that, there's a lot more hype about other English players. Declan Rice has a lot more hype on his shoulders than, than Mason Mount, for example. I really don't rate Declan Rice as much as a lot of people do. Well, he's, he's, he's able to impact games more, I would say, than Mason Mount. And so at least you understand you're buying him to play a very specific role. You're paying twice what he's probably worth. But if you were getting Declan Rice for £60 million and he was going to play every game as one of your holding midfielders, game in, week in, week out, and do what he does, I'd be happy enough with that. But I just think Mason Mount is um, a bit of smoke and mirrors at this stage. And the fact that everybody wants him, I don't know, it's a bit reluctant to... to um, I don't know. Let's wait and see where he goes and let's see what the money is. But it seems like perhaps Chelsea are issuing the, oh, it's definitely going to be 60 million lads. And then they're like, yeah, what are you going to do? Well, Old Trafford seems to be his personal preference. And I think the likes of Liverpool and other teams sniffing around are aware of that, whether United want him or not. United fans trust Ten Hag with the signings. I don't, I don't think there's as much hype because he's a systems player. He doesn't stand out or have like one definable quality like a Declan Rice or James Madison does. Because he I, does a bit of everything for you. I'd be much more excited like if a I technical was, James Milner. Liverpool fans should be more excited by Alexis McAllister, for example. Like, that's an easy signing to get excited about. Mount is definitely more of a question mark. Um, yeah, I just think it's, uh, it's a bit... When, when we keep getting told about how resources are scant at Manchester United and they keep overspending for players, you're like, well, I mean, you know... Who at, tells you resources are scant? At some point, well, uh, they don't have the opportunity to spend because uh, they've wasted it all. Well, that's one of the rumours as to why the Mount deal might not happen to United because the, there's a bit of uncertainty about the sale of the club and United don't really want to be signing anyone at the moment for obvious reasons. 
um, until that sale is, is either happening or further down the line. The other thing that um, Jacob Steinberg's writing about this today about Harry Kane, there's a line in it about Eric Ten Hag being obsessed with Harry Kane. I'm always a little bit concerned about that too. Like you, you, you're like, oh, we're going to get well, this one player and he's the only thing that we can do. And we're going to spend it whatever it is you want. Mr. Levy, take all my money. And now Harry Kane is obviously going to be worth uh, probably, more than likely, he will fulfil your expectations. He'll score 29 league goals and 10 other league, ten other goals in other games and in the Champions League. You need somebody like Harry Kane. So I can see at this stage, even at 29, when I don't know when his birthday is, but I can see why it's you, you pay the money for him and that's grand. And if you use some of your money to get Mason Mount that prevents you from getting Harry Kane, then I'm like, well, that doesn't really make any sense. Mm, I understand the obsession. Like, Kane's had uh, one of his best seasons ever and Spurs have been a disaster. Yeah. He's crossed, he scored 28 goals. Yeah. If he's not going to leave, still now, doing he's it. never going to leave. His motivation to continue doing it in fairness to him is pretty impressive. Like, he's played with this rabble around him. Everything and about the club is a disaster except him. It does feel like he could go to 34, 35 still scoring loads of goals. Yeah. That actually there's, there's nothing in his game. He's super lean, fit. If he avoids the ankle injury, that he has that problem with his right ankle. Yeah. Other than that, like... I understand completely the obsession. A world-class striker. But being it's always been rare. fixated on one thing means that you can't get value or can't see opportunities elsewhere. And it's not, a, it's not a good idea. Or else you're very focused on what you want. Well, he was very focused on Anthony and they overpaid for it. Like, there are other players who could have delivered what Anthony delivered. Anthony still obviously has potential to continue to grow and is getting better. And I, I'm not saying it was a bad signing, but they paid too much money for it. Oh, they did at the time for sure, but like three years into his Manchester United career, well, people right. said Cristiano Ronaldo was a waste of money. From 2003 to six, he didn't really do very much. Was, and uh, that was £12.5 million back then, which was a fair bit of money. And then the last three years was like, oh, okay, that was all worth it. I'm not comparing Anthony to Ronaldo directly. I'm saying you can get value for money over time. He's young. If Ten Hag stays around, Ten Hag loves him. Like. Okay, okay. I, I mean, I think that there's a they're completely different situation. You're like, you're adding a player into an already winning culture. And so therefore it didn't really matter if it was, it mattered less if it was successful or otherwise. He, that Whereas period, this, th- three to six for United was very much transitional. But before that, like they had one, they had, everybody had credit in the bank, in the group, and you knew you had the bones of a team who were capable of winning because they had, they had one. Whether or not that period of time was transitional or not, they still, it was still a winning culture in a club with a manager who knew what it took to win. At the moment, we don't know if they have anything like that in England. And obviously, the amount of money in the game and the speed at which rivals can catch you has massively moved forward. So the the requirement to sign really well is now higher than it's ever been, particularly for a club like Manchester United, who apparently don't have uh, the power in the market that they used to, even though they've massively spent millions and millions and millions. Of course they don't have the power. I mean, the, att- you mean the attraction. The money. They have the money. Yeah. They spent the money. Yeah. A draw, to, a draw tonight and all of a sudden United is a far more attractive why, prospect so why would you go to United if you had the choice of going to City maybe it's very understandable maybe you might want to play football maybe Manchester United pay more in wages yeah, I mean their I goalkeeper know. seems to be getting paid more than the Manchester City goalkeeper which goalkeeper would you rather have yeah but look how much they're paying Erling Haaland and can pay I think the the difference there is that City can pay what they want they just don't all the time or maybe, or, or maybe they do. We'll find out uh, when the truth comes out yeah. with regards to the charges. There's um, an interesting comment here by Shane Dunn. I think Evan Ferguson needs to leave Brighton. I can see next year being a big struggle with European football. 
Yeah. Aston Villa would be a good fit. Yeah, Aston Villa, great idea. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I was like, this is nonsense. Great, great end. You saved it at the last minute. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. <laughs> Sell Ollie Watkins and replace him with Evan Ferguson. I am on board. Quid's in. We make a profit on that deal. Uh, Brian, I'm not suggesting 12 million was the same as 100 million. Uh, no. Well, he was. I'm just saying he was. It, he was was a lot of, it was a lot of money. All mm. those, I'm, not, I'm not making this comparison. I'm just saying that they're, they're in the ballpark. Oh, I mean, the comparison It's a rhetorical a, flourish that, um, that we use from time to time when we are actually trying to compare, but we're just like floating the kite. Apparently our vibe is uncomfortable. Flying the kite. Well, I mean, someone's picking up. Someone's got the, the radar. I'm dead right. Very comfortable. On fire. Dead very, right. I'm very comfortable with it. Um, Aston Villa. Yeah, maybe. Nah, Listen. Uh, yeah, we would take him. I mean, I'm sure he'd get a game from time to time, wouldn't he? He's not mo- He's not leaving. Bright- Why would he bother leaving? No, it's, Bright- n- it's nonsensical. This is the whole. This is a. This is about as smart as he's. Um, oh, he might play for England. Yeah. All right. <laughs> the under 17s are playing Spain on Saturday in the European quarterfinals. If we win, we're through automatically to the World Cup. So there's a big, 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 big game now. Uh, Spain have double-digit under 17 titles, I think. Yeah, was that was it? Either it was nine or eleven. I, I'm, I apologize for getting the figure wrong, but um, you were making the point. Dan was making the point last night about the, the amount of fifteen-year-olds in our, our team. So we have a really, really, really young team. Um, Spain do have the youngest player ever to play for Barcelona in their side. I mean, it's not bad, is it? No, uh, was he fourteen and something? He's fifteen and something anyway. Um, and he scored a cracker in their game against Serbia. Uh, so anyway, look. A lot of home base players, a lot of excitement. Yeah, is it five o'clock on Saturday? I didn't see the kickoff time, but it's um, that's one that all of a sudden now we're all getting behind. Not that we're all following hype trends, but I mean, the seventeens. When you see so many, it's like Will talking about Offaly yesterday. So many uh, really, really young players in that Offaly under twenties panel, but this Irish under seventeens panel, like when you look at their average age, it's just remarkable. Um, and I think there's, like, there's one of them maybe playing for Crystal Palace. I was looking at the the squad there of, of where each player is playing. So you have um, Matthew Murray playing over in Spain. Um, you have uh, Jake Grante playing for Crystal Palace. Jason Healy, the keeper, is with Southend United. A lot of them are, are with local teams, though. So it's it's remarkable that they've still been held on to. Um, Melia, of course, and, and um, uh, one of those players that I guess we've been talking about a lot in the show. Vinnie Perth, big fan of him, 15 years of age and already playing League of Ireland regularly. So, yeah, imagine they got a result against Spain. Um, but I, th- I feel like even the experience of playing Spain at this point is good. I know. You've got to win these games. This is a, this is a tournament. 7 o'clock kickoff on uh, Saturday evening. Um, so, 7 o'clock kickoff on Saturday evening, and it is live on the RT News channel. So, you get a chance to watch that. Yeah, um, a lot to look forward to, like the 17s, like. It's a brilliant group of players and the youth, as you were saying, are like the most number of 15-year-olds playing uh, in that side, even more than can the combined rest of the nations. Like, and you combine that with the lack of facilities in the country too. It's pretty remarkable. It's actually well worth listening back to Dan Madonna last night talking about this with Joe. Uh, the future's bright in many ways for Irish football. In other ways, it's so frustrating how far we are behind other European countries. You uh, you mentioned we had Jen Hogan and Port McDonald coming up. I don't wonder if he has, had any views on the competitive nature of under-12 sport, generally speaking. I think I remember playing under-11 soccer that was certainly at a competitive level. Competitive, I mean, it was a league, there were points, we kept the result of the, the scores. Um, Gaelic's probably slightly different. We definitely played under-10 blitzes uh, where certainly scores were kept uh, and I never 
felt like it was a bad thing. You you learn to lose and you learn to win and you learn to draw. Um, I think that's I, anyway. Go on, keep going. Yeah, no, I'm just I'm, I'm like I know the, the these go games or whatever the GA call them, uh, and that's why this story has made headlines in the last 24 hours or so that the GA have come out and kind of reiterated that you know there can't be any competitiveness and they're stamp- clamping down on any uh, signs of competitiveness on a 12 level, but. Um, it is a bit remarkable and ridiculous. Anthony Moyles made a few very good points on Twitter yesterday that I agreed with, largely. I can't wait for Moyles to come back into the studio. I'm, well, I'm what, are you, what are your views? That this, this argument has been framed completely wrong. It's a gross misunderstanding of the whole point. Of course games are competitive. Like, uh, who is it that there's two flies? Oh, Anthony Nash is like, uh, you know, two flies going up. I'm competitive about it. Everybody's competitive about it. Mm. The kids are all competitive about it. They know when they win or lose the games and they're keeping score themselves. But the whole point is that what you're trying to do is to get the most people play the most amount of sport for as long as possible. Not to have like a winning culture at the under 10s. Yeah, yeah. Who are killing, God, they're like absolute killers and screw you, next club over. Shelbyville, you're a bunch of losers. And also, if you're not in the first team, screw you, you're not getting any game time. There are, there are kids who are going to training and then who go to matches and don't play any minutes in the game because dickhead coach wants to win and take home the, yeah, we crushed the opposition. You know, that's a separate problem, isn't no, it? No, it's not a separate problem. It's, it's the actual specific problem that they're addressing. Well, give, give that's the, the whole point. It's the whole point of the Go Games is that you don't have the competition, you don't keep a track record and stats and data because you can't trust coaches. You can't. You can't, you can't trust uh, people not to get carried away with the desire to be, oh, I'm Jose Mourinho on the sideline. And I have to say, I thought that that was the kind of tone from a lot of people. Well, I'm okay. I'm, I'm great. I'm like, oh, okay, granted you are. But like, it turns out most people aren't. But coaches should be forced to play players an equal amount. I know that's a very, very difficult thing to police, but was, well, it, was Phil saying yesterday, one of the lads in the office saying yesterday there's someone he knows who's an accountant and literally keeps track on an Excel fair, spreadsheet. Fair play to him, fair play to him. That, like, but that, that, that's a lot of work. The alternative is that actually it doesn't really matter. All you're trying to do is to get the most players, the most amount of skill. It's actually about skill acquisition and it's about touches and it's about time spent uh, having crack as opposed to feeling the pressure this whole like oh we learned to win and lose it didn't do me any harm the subs on your under 11 team playing soccer are they all still playing soccer? no I mean the vast majority of people who are subs underage decide actually you know what I'm going to go off and do something else that's what happens right? I, I was a sub a lot on under 11s under 12s I was and what age were you? 11 or 12 you were like you were playing on your <laughs> team well yeah yeah but but it didn't put me off. Obviously, I liked to get... Did you get game time? I did get game time, yeah. Okay. So, like, then you're not one of these people I'm talking about. But there are other teams, then there are reserve teams below that at a, at a level where maybe players can't get into that. So you're getting game time? Yeah. Yeah, I feel like everyone's getting game time. No, there was, we, had, we just had, like, 20 players at under 13. Anyway. And lads be put aside at, um, on a Friday in training being like, we're going to rest you this weekend. Yeah, because you're not good enough. And it's real, it's real scaring for people. Yeah, <laughs> totally. totally. I, look, uh, and... Well, let's get Moyles in because I, I don't want to have an argument with him when he's not here <laughs> but I will Anthony don't worry <laughs> one, day, one day wrapped up uh, that whole thing about learning to win and lose as well they, lo- they win and lose every single like they're having mess fights where they're shooting imaginary arrows against imaginary things and they're, they're keeping score themselves like the whole thing that you can, you can only learn by being crushed by your nearest rivals otherwise you've never experienced life it's nonsense not that it's you can nonsense. only learn but I'm but saying but it's nonsense it, it, you know, they've but already learned this in lots of different places but you sorry you, you know 
the, the people on Twitter know right as opposed to like I, Morris Brosnan has a good piece today where he talks to Pat Daly and he goes through like the list of people um, who have actually thought about this and, and where the, the ideas came from Dublin started it uh, and then is it Mickey Whelan did a PhD which kind of proved the whole thing like more touches more game uh, like late developers there's a gazillion different reasons why this is actually a good idea and why it works yeah okay I, I don't, I'm not saying Go Games are a bad idea for sure uh, I'm just saying the GS sometimes pick their battles you know this is the most important battle they could possibly pick well I'm 100% on why, why, why not just educate the coaches and just because you can try educating the coaches but coaches have busy busy lives and most of them are doing an absolutely sensational job I have to say any of the clubs that my kids go to they're doing a sensational job about getting game time and making sure that everybody has an opportunity and mixing the, the talent level so you get an opportunity to play up a bit and you get an opportunity to play down a bit and I couldn't be happier with, with the way they're doing it but I have seen other teams that we play against sometimes where the coaches are screaming at the well, under 8s, yeah. under 9s, under 10s, under 11s and you're like what are you doing? Like what kind of madness is this? So the whole notion that like you could educate the coaches the coaches are too busy like there are three training sessions or two training sessions in a match a week there's teamers for 40 different people that you have to send out there's sessions to be designed and now you want to come and lecture them about how to be a better coach it's really difficult those, those parents and coaches that live vicariously through their kids are they, do they not exist in Go Games as well? Well but you can't because like I mean, sorry, absolutely. You do see some some parents screaming at their children. You're going, "This, what are you doing? Like, she's going to give this up. Mm. What, what are you doing?" Um, but most of them don't. Most of them are just like trying to organise it and have crack. It's supposed to be fun. What we want is participation. To the, anyway, we're already doing the bit that we're doing later on. Mm-hmm. So, two minutes past eight this morning. OTBAM with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shape or your money back. Neon Night Edition is available now. Uh, up next, Vinnie Perth. OTB AM The Sports Breakfast Show from Off the Ball And now for our weekly League of Ireland slash Evan Ferguson watch It's Vinnie Perth Vinnie, how are you? Good morning, how are we doing? Yeah, pretty good Yeah, have calmed down? No, no. <laughs> What's the point in calming down? No fun There is no point No You've seen all this, right? What's your instinct about it? I don't see it all, to be fair I coached at a more senior level But Did you not what? None of your kids? No No, So, but what you do get told is um and sometimes when I say things on here, I get um, I get corrected when I'm finished. Okay. Right? So we should have a, a section at the top. Yeah. My apologies for last yeah. week. So <laughs> last week's chat around uh, summer football. Not that I was corrected on it. Sort of the argument back is it works around the DDSL works around um, uh, school, and holidays is sort of the excuse mm. that they come up with. But it's still wrong. But anyway, uh, on on your argument now. A lot of the problem is parents oh, and coaches and parents. And going back to, uh, I was at a club once and I tried to take some under 18 players into the senior section and I was, I was like, no, why would you do that? I don't want them going up to, we're, we're trying to win a league. I was going, yeah, but I'm trying to make them better players. Yeah, yeah, but I've had this team since they were under nines and I want to win a league. So I want to win a league is what you just said. <laughs> no, the kids, you don't want to make. Yeah, yeah. I put nine years into this. That's a problem. I just, to be honest with you, where I was in the situation, I walked away from the conversation. They had a director of football spoke to him. So over to you, boss. But it is a mixture of parents going, I don't want my son being taken off. I want him to play. He's better than the group he's with. There's all of these, and there's there's a lot going on in it. To be honest. Um, 
So I don't know if you've had a chance to read Arthur James O'Dee's book about Limerick, but he's got a brilliant section about the academy. And they, there's a, an interview, or there's a moment where somebody explains uh, how they became aligned and they call all the underage coaches in, like these are at, at, at inter-county level. So obviously they're really good coaches already. And um, I think that, I, I'm going to butcher this now, Arthur will do a much better job of it. But basically the question is, uh, whose job is it here to win a title? And everybody puts their hands up. And the guy at the top of the room goes, eh, eh. Yeah. the senior manager's job is to win the title. Your job is to get as many players as you possibly can through that will make his team. We don't care if you win titles, but if they come through with the skill set and the technical, tactical, physical know-how about how to get better constantly and yeah. come, uh, curious about improving themselves, then we are going to... Titles will probably follow if, if a club went with that m- mantra, to be honest yeah. with you. That's the thing. And that's the thing about it, and it's about... And actually, they, be- get, they become better because they're more relaxed, because they're not like constantly chasing the fifth star a little bit, like Leinster. Yeah, and look, th- there's no... There's no there's nothing wrong with elitism in sport. You have to have that. It's just where you started is the challenge. And uh, if you've got a really good 12-year-old who's been, or 11-year-old playing for a, a local club and he's been beaten five or six and he's really good, likelihood his parents are going to take him out of that and go somewhere else. So it's that is that is the problem. And the 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 gaps is still there like the sides being is being hammered in all levels of football and that's not good either and I don't know where, how you get the balance right on that um, it seems like they're getting better in football I just can't find the um, bit where you sent through the mm. team sheets earlier oh, yeah. on from the under fifth the under seventeens but yeah. actually one of the really brilliant things they've done is they've listed off all the clubs that the players have played for and yeah. where they've come through and I think because previously it would have been like you know Pat Rovers Bowes whatever there's one at Hull but they've actually listed off um, that's in Kevin's Leak Slip Ferrybank Swords Manor Swords yeah. Celtic Crumlin United like Carrigaline all the local but there's no one in the League of Ireland saying we're the only ones that can do this to be honest with you and it's a, it, it, we're starting to see a joint process was it managed correctly no did did Rude Doctor uh, get it did, what he wanted true as director of football time Yes, did he do it the wrong way? That, that's what the schoolboy sections would say. But like someone like Mace Amelia, who we would have spoke about before, he he's a Wicklow lad. He's from around New Newtown, Mount Kennedy. Um, he would have played for Joey's eight to thirteen, and then went to Bray Wonders and has ended up at Pat's. So, um, and obviously. Uh, being at Joe's he had to go to the next stage which was League of Ireland Bray and then at Bray he obviously felt I wanted to play at a better standard which is St Pat's and that's that's okay like, yeah. and he's gone on to better standard now he's in around the first team so there is all of them stories I always said from the beginning the the problem with how we manage this is we we sort of cast aside the Joey's of the world the Cherry Orchards and I'm speaking from a Dublin perspective for Cherry Orchard uh, St Kevin's that was forced to link with balls and it actually worked and we should have done more that Crumley United a huge amount of talent and people who had big big experience were sort of left behind but it's starting to come together now and I think it's it's very close to being a good system now and it's you know there's a lot of hard work going Involved. One of the other things that um, I know Colin was asking you about before you came on was uh, about how the scouting system actually works for players who do end up going to the UK and there's actually a really strict set of rules in place. Yeah, no, it's, re- it's, it's really interesting because um, just go back to my day, you would just went on trial um, or 
even even up to ten years ago, people go on trial. Uh, you, you go to a club, you'd spend two weeks, and if you think about it, it's totally private. No one knows. No one knows, right? So, um, and maybe got using me has gone back too far. But a, a guy even twenty years ago would have went to trial. Most likely, if you went to Liverpool Palace, wherever Ch- Celtic, people didn't see you before you got there. As in. The club. The club you were going on trial to. So they would have had somebody scouting you. Yeah, so a scout would have sent over three or four players at a given window or somebody really liked, he'd go over. And the club then have a feel for you, train for them with the week. You go into their YTS or if you were above that level, whatever youth level, you'd play again the weekend, you'd get sent home. And uh, if they were impressed with you, they'd call you back. But now it's completely different. Uh, the whole sort of FIFA really got a grip of this and set down a real sort of strict rules. So for an Irish player, um, first of all, when you go over, so if, if for example, nice and mealy, bad example, but if a player of St. Pat's or Rovers is going on trial now, the club in England have watched a bit of video. Does does a detailed scor- uh, scouting reports? They know they know the player inside out. So it's more you're going. You're not going to trial. It's use that word trial, but you're going to find out about each other a little bit, okay? And then, um, but FIFA have have put in place now. There's, there's a rule now in place where you've only got a six week window where it must be registered if you go on trial for someone. So if Vinnie Part goes on trial for Spurs tomorrow or say on the 1st of January, I've got a six-week window to go on trial to any club. Right. I could go one-week Spurs United all the way for six weeks, then not allow going any more trials for one more year. A whole year? Yeah, wow. and it's it's like it's fascinating. What, why is that? Um, I suppose you've got to give FIFA some credit as well. So think about world football. There's kids flying all over the world, parents going, oh yeah, Wilson. Like, I don't want to use they're exploiting kids, but they're they're just being sent everywhere. Trials, mm-hmm. you know, off you go. Clubs are taking chances on people from yeah. all over the world. And they're just trying to stop kids yeah. from all over the world, effectively. Yeah. So when you look at our situation, yes, Brexit um, hasn't, hasn't helped us. But also, um, FIFA will not allow uh, an Irish player signed for an English club mm. between 16 and 18. But, uh, but we have a common travel agreement. So if I wanted at 17 to go to England and become uh, an apprentice electrician, I can't, but I can't become a footballer. Yeah. And I was saying, I was, I was expecting a big club to challenge that in court, but there doesn't seem to be an appetite to do it because it's, it's FIFA will control the international transfer. Right. So it's really restricted Irish players now in terms of... Um, Evan Ferguson was probably the last player to get through that system and you've got to you, you can use Evan as a good example because Evan is now just gone 18 mm. so he would have he, well it was back in on his mother as typical will, will probably hear this and she'll give out to me I think it's November was his birthday but Evan only would have went to the UK in November so you think where he is now I know there's no way he'd be where he is so that's the challenge for the next Evan Ferguson or the, whoever that may be. And League of Ireland clubs won't like me saying, and this is where I might get a few phone calls. And and I know why, and I'm not saying we should, but we ain't able to provide what the really top elite footballers need between 16, 17, and wait for them to turn mm. 18. And the challenge with that is you may be good enough for 16 and you may just have fallen off a little bit at 18 because of 
because of form and life and different things. And you say, well, you wouldn't have made it anyway. Well, you've missed a huge opportunity. Yeah. Slight counterpoint, right? Just on the off chance that somebody, the next, the next Evan Ferguson comes through, is there a possibility that they rip up the scoring records in the League of Ireland and get a move to a championship team and the club gets a, a better transfer fee up front? So uh, this is the other side of this. Yeah. I did want to ask, like, like, what percentage will Bowles end up getting? Is, is Kevin's? Was it well, Kevin's? Well, yeah, the, I don't know the ins and outs of that one, right? Yeah. No, no, no. Because you've got to remember, Kevin's is part of his development, and it's, so it's every a, year you get. They'll probably right. get Kevin's will probably get more in the fee okay. than Bowles because he's been at Kevin's for longer. So, um, yeah, of course. Like if Evan had a stead, could he have played week in week out for Bowles? Possibly. I don't know, but. Uh, I, I know, I know where, I know where. If you had a sixteen-year-old son who was really, really good, I know where you'd want them. Evans' story, his, his advantage is that he had a father who was versed in professional football. No, no, I, 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 I don't, I don't point, accept is, that. As in, he went to clubs like Manchester United and maybe Liverpool and saw the system compared to Brighton and said, well, oh, that, yeah. that fits, that doesn't." Yeah, but but I, I think some of this is. Um, and I, I think this is an important point to make because people listen at different stages and, and I'd like to... How do I say this? I know some people listen because I get a lot of feedback around League of Ireland ground. So just just like so, some of the misnomers around... In fairness, there's a lot of ex-player sons or sports people's sons who do well. Yeah. Right? But in no way, shape or form had Barry got Evan out the back garden at five o'clock in the morning doing doggies or anything <laughs> like that. He I just think, he's not Frank Lampard Sr. you're saying. No, <laughs> and, and I just think that's important. Like I... It was less. It was less than three years ago. I went out the wayside to watch a schools match. Evan was playing in with Barry, and I'm going to say three years. Ago, it, it was I actually remember clearly the day because it was the day uh, John Delaney was in front of the Oireachtas, so right. someone would be able to work out. It wasn't that long ago. And I remember he was in. He was on trials to United Liverpool at the time, mm. and saying to Barry, "Now I knew the answer, but I, I said to Barry, what's he doing playing here?' Because it was." It was probably I don't know skilled football, but it was like senior or or, or C level or something. Mm. Vinny, he has to play with his mates, right? So yeah. that's not a father who was like making someone eat uh, within the inch of his life. It's not someone like I've had a, a Chinese with Evan on a Friday night, so it's not. And I just think it's important to say uh, that kid was allowed to grow up, like, mm. and I think that has helped him. So he was allowed to grow up. He was made, allowed to make his own choices when he went on trial. To, he was at a lot of a lot of big clubs, as you said. But I know he, he liked Liverpool when he went on trial. But Brighton was the one for him, and it was it was his decision. It wasn't an agent's decision. It wasn't his father and mother's decision. It was obviously they all had inputs, but it was about uh, a kid saying, "This is where I feel really comfortable," and I think that's important because. Because I have seen and heard of the stories where it's gone the other way, where parents have got someone with a bit of talent and actually spoiled them, where Barry has just let it, and, and Sarah have just let the kid grow up normally, mm. just so normally. April 2019 was that game, so but, four, four years ago. Yeah, four years ago I was watching him play a, a pretty bog-standard skill match out in Wayside at <laughs> two o'clock on a, would have been a Monday or a Tuesday. And the picture last night is him beating De Bruyne for a header, yeah. and you're like, it's pretty well, good. Well, like that's where uh, we we were having Sunday dinner, and the Sky News or Sky Sports was on. Who were they playing? Was the last week, the week before? And you know when when Martin Tyler says, "And it's live," and then he starts talking about Evan Ferguson, like it's it is 
Yeah, pretty it's, cool. It's pretty cool, <laughs> like, and it does make the hair stand up back in. And we don't, you don't take that for granted. And um, it's funny, I heard the discussion. It may, it may have been here yesterday morning or a couple of mornings ago talking about Kevin Kelleher. And mm. There is another side to these guys that. We like, and I do it, and you, we all do. We talk about them as the footballer. What's brilliant for for sort of the first thing my wife would say would be, "Haven't signed the new deal, yeah, yeah." What sort? I don't know. I wouldn't ask. But we, she would see it from a perspective completely outside the football and go, "He's probably sorted for life." Yeah, he's close to it, and that's a huge box ticked. And it's a bit like mm. Kevin, where you're, people are going. You know, he should be for the last three years. Should be getting out of there. Should be doing this. He's probably Kevin Keller's probably set up for the rest of his life as his kids. Now, well, there's a point where yeah, personal pride and football and all that stuff. Yeah, but he, there's other sides to yeah. all these stories. Well, he could be he could be Scott Carson type figure who's still playing at forty forty two. You know, yeah, like, yeah. probably taking fifteen grand a week out of Man City and he saves dives all over the place for, and if they need to do a, a shoot where some supporters scoring against the first team it's Scott Carson and Gold and yeah. hey, he's I take, take 10-15 grand a week it's the greatest job in the world yeah. is, uh, oh, and I hope Keevan goes on to do more but you have to remember like he's sitting on a big contract with Liverpool he's sitting on a huge bonus structure inside a part of the squad of a Champions League team for the last number of years and you're going, ooh, will I take a risk of signing for mm. a lower club or a championship club and doesn't go well for a year, or will I just make sure I'm secured? Now, I'm only... Yeah. I'm not saying that's what keeping yeah, your thoughts are, but I'm just incentive. saying, there isn't there is two sides to all of these stories, and now now I hope it's time for him to, to go off and, and do his merry dance. Uh, let's talk Let's talk about the League of Ireland situation at the moment. Um uh, some dropped points I think since we were last on which is good yeah good news for you yeah. uh, Rovers were beaten he, lo- he uh, loves this title uh, race yeah. just wants a See, race why, why Stephen Hendry and, and Steve Davis and me just <laughs> like come on lads let's get on with it and go the best teams have to yeah, win yeah, yeah. but it is it's been like first of all I think you've got to give credit to to a part time club and Kevin Doherty they've been playing quite well recently without um, getting the results and they've been drifting down the table but they were excellent up in Tallis Stadium and Freddie Draper we've mentioned before in the show uh, talk about Evan Ferguson he's 18 as well and he's exactly the same frame he's mm. probably even bigger but um, he scored an outstanding goal um, um, on the counter attack he's on loan from Lincoln um, I hope he can hold on to him till the end of the season but uh, they, they were excellent on the day but what, what this result has done is you know, it's it's really tightened up the league again for everybody. It's given people a, a, a hope between obviously Bowles and Derry. Derry now have, have retaken the league, the lead. So it's making it fascinating. The amount of drop points, I just can't get my head around it. Um, the amount of teams losing three in a row and then winning three in a row. Um, but um, yeah, I have to say. I have to say, you know, I I think I speak really highly of Rovers regularly here, but I know the other day was the exception where they I think the twenty eight shots and eleven on target, uh, but they did have seventy nearly seventy five percent possession. Their their ability to to uh, have a huge amount of shots on goal or is is just holding them back at the moment. I think they've got to be a bit more clinical. Is that? Um I suppose this is the question that we've we've been asking about them in European football over the last couple of years. Is that sometimes you you're, you're expecting the form to come, and the form comes in patches, 
but it hasn't been good enough for them to go, OK, they're in the best form possible when the European fixtures arrive and we're giving them the best chance. They, I mean, maybe that's unfair. I mean, I'm not characterising it exactly right over the last yeah. couple of years because it seems like they're getting better year on year. But you'd hope that the improvement would be faster. Oh, they're, they're an outstanding side. They're brilliant to watch. All of that stuff. And, like, the goal, if, if, if people are listening, think about the goal that he conceded against Drogheda the other day. It's Jack Bourne on the edge of the box and he's about five yards and he's playing the ball into a striker's feet who has his back to goal. And that's how they play. Who's Jack is looking for him to bounce back to go to someone else. And there's, 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 and then what happens is that breaks down and draw to go and score within 20 seconds. And you're like, I know uh, the statistics of, of shots, and the reason I bring up, I don't like, Stephen Bradley brought them up after the game with 28 shots. That's a game we should win. Statistically, they're not having loads of shots on goal because it's a, they're a bit like Man City to watch. They're, they're brilliant, brilliant tech technicians but uh, I and I've said it before and here and I repeat myself I'd rather watch a Klopp Liverpool Klopp team where it's Trent and Robinson and it's Salah and it's shots 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 and you know I'm probably going to concede two or three and I think they've got to be a bit more clinical as a team to go to that next level and, and in Europe you'll probably only get one or two chances and um You've got to be more clinical, and that will that will hurt them because they didn't um, they didn't score enough goals in Europe last year, and that's a that's a, a, a blot in their copybook, I would say. Yeah. Now the other thing is their recent run of form has been really really good. Yeah. So there's going to be li- these little, and it's not even a blip to to um, get held in a game like this. But if they were to back it up with, uh, so they're at Cork tomorrow. Um, You'd expect them to win this, right? Yeah. That's the the situation at the moment. Is you'd expect Shamrock Rovers to beat Cork City, but at the same time, maybe there's a bit of a, a response from Cork and mm. um, yeah, like they're, they're one of the great League of Ireland teams of all time. And I don't compare eras, whether it's the Dundalk or the Shelbournes or whatever you want to go back. I don't like doing that because the game has changed. Even in that twenty years, those three sides you could pick out, but they played seventeen games and only won nine. So that means they drop points in eight games. Like that's a lot of games, and that's where I would be would have been critical at different stages of someone like Derry, where Derry now could turn to you or Derry supporter will say, "Why well, you're talking rubbish? We're top of the table, <laughs> uh, we're a point clear." But I, 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 I see Rovers having these spells where they'll go seven and eight games, win seven and eight games, win, and they'll have the odd. Uh, hiccup here and there particularly around Europe and I think some of the cl- other clubs have missed the boat this Rovers side have dropped points but yeah look um, the other thing we haven't really seen them is, is Rovers really tested so for example like you said if Cork were to hold them scoreless after 65-70 minutes then you start taking a chance because you're a point behind Derry and then you go oh one of your fullbacks you're sent a half runs out with the ball and you concede and so and the manager might make a different substitution because he needs to get a win and that's what we want to see we want to see the great sides tested and I think the challenge now is for Derry Derry have to make sure we have a title race I think they're the ones best equipped at the moment John Daly's first permanent game is Pat's boss against Dundalk tomorrow night like what's the what's the I guess target for them is it silverware this season for Pat's now at this stage or um, I, I just think like a lot of these clubs from sort of balls Pat's uh, Dundalk European football is huge for them, mm. and the awards is huge. It's you know it's 
close it's you're nearly guaranteed four hundred thousand pound. Um the appointment of John Daly, just to touch on it briefly, I, I I'm always I'm not a believer in appointing an assistant manager to follow a manager who got sacked. I always worry about that because Personal experience? No, no, I didn't have any. I, I, I followed a manager <laughs> who left. Uh, but what I'll say on John Daly is I think I think but I think this one is slightly different. I think uh he, um, he had a good relationship um, with people and he's a good lad and, and um, he, he has a set of balls that's all I'd say to you because and, and people do be lazy around people like John Daly John Daly had a great career in Scottish football he's probably I think he was the first Catholic ever to sign for Rangers mm. he's, he's worked under Craig Levine as well Hearts as a coach he's huge experience and Craig I Johnson think, no, no. Sorry, there was Mo Johnson, yeah. but he was he was one of the very few. Right. Yeah. and for an Irish lad from Inchicore around that area, yeah, fair play. Uh, yeah. he's got a lot of stick over over the years. <coughs> so he's got, you know, he, he he makes he's not afraid to make decisions, and he's gone in there and done a great job. I actually think it's a great appointment. I really really wish him well. Dinty is his, is his nickname, um, um, but Dinty will do a really good job there. But Pats is a so I don't want to say it's a sleeping giant. The crowds they're getting is brilliant. It's really high. Then we we need Pats in the title race. Yeah, yeah. need them in the title the race. League. They're not there yet, but we need to get them in the title race. I think once uh, Rovers start dropping points, though, there is a psychological element to it, where everybody else starts to think, actually, you know what, we're not beaten just before we go out here. And there was a bit of that for the last few seasons, and yeah. that's the sign of the league starting to bubble up and um, and all of that working. Uh, anything else briefly? We got to go, but. No, it's um, uh, obviously an interesting week this week. Uh, Pats and Dundalk, as you said, but you, you must say we we shouldn't be given. We gave Sligo a lot of compliments mm-hmm. here about four four weeks ago, and they haven't won a game it's got since. Slid fairly bad. So uh, I'm sorry for that. Yeah, I'm sorry. Say I've got a bit of stick about that. But <laughs> okay. no, look, uh, the Irish Seventeens, by the way. Um, um, a lot of home base players. So it's we're able to twenty, come. maybe. Yeah. No, that's. That's because a lot, some of them guys would have been away, but yeah, um, yeah we, we have to wish them well over the weekend. All right, very good stuff. Now, a reminder, don't miss all of the action in Rugby Daily today in your OTB podcast network, bringing you everything you need to know about rugby. It's all in partnership with Deliveroo. Deliveroo has some great bundles and deals. Just open the app, make your choice, and watch your rider come to you. Deliveroo, food, we get it. Up next, Jen Hogan and Port McDonald on that GA under 12 story first, a slight tangent returned last night. Here's the lads talking about vintage jerseys. Yeah, I don't know. I, I just, I, I wouldn't stick a jersey on now at all. I'd say mid twenties. I would. Is there stopped. anything wrong with it though? I no, suppose. I think we all. I think you naturally stop so. doing it. You just naturally stop wearing. They're, I think for the, for the most part they're quite ugly though. Yeah, well, that's I, I, from a fashion point. I just think it's a bad look. I saw a fellow walking through town on the way in yesterday. I, I suspect he wasn't. I don't. He, I don't think he was from here. He was probably um, just he was in a group. So kind of the group. Well, they didn't seem familiar with the surroundings. So I'm guessing it around. It was kind of around Dublin Castle. So you're probably you know it's one of the sites. Kerry, I'd say. And he was wearing. <laughs> That's <laughs> what Aaron, uh, a Man United jersey from '99. You know the white one, yeah, from '99, yeah, '99 with Keane '16 on the back, yeah. And I thought, God, that's a very conscious choice. You've thought about that, and you thought, I'm going to be walking around Ireland. Mm. I'm going to wear this Roy Keane jersey. Mm. You, you don't go. like that? I don't like it. I don't think it look good. I think it's interesting that at 32, he's even. So whatever about day to day, Monday to Friday, I think it's interesting he's feeling at 32. I don't know if I'd be wearing a Kerry jersey to Crow Park anymore. 
don't think I, like again there's no judgement either way but I especially wouldn't judge someone wearing a jersey to a match yeah the one he's picked out as well is the ultimate Kerry jersey to wear it's the one everyone wants to pick up which is that late 90s yeah. one season Adidas jersey mm. so it's not like you're wearing a bad Kerry jersey Crow, Crow Park would be a dour place if everyone says well I need to wear my Polo shirts, polo shirts. Very great. The, the thing about that is now, and I, I disagree on the Kerry thing. But say if you're going to Clare matches, like I think the Clare kit is a very nice kit. I think it looks brilliant on the pitch, right? Mm-hmm. I don't think as an adult the bright yellow jersey looks particularly good with a pair of jeans. <laughs> and no. you know, and you do get to that point where it's like I have a very nice like navy t-shirt here that has the Encore uh, yeah. you know, symbol and it has the blue, blue and uh, yellow uh, strips. But ultimately, I can wear it all night and not feel like yeah I'd be going for that and luminous yeah uh, we'll push on look each to their own is ultimately the only conclusion we can reach right uh, that is a slight tangent you can subscribe to it in the OTB daily feed now uh, a couple of days ago Cara Kane posted a tweet and a story uh, from the Irish News saying that the GA is clamping down and will sanction those involved in competitive games for players under the age of 12 particular impact on blitzes no keeping scores at games no semi-finals or finals no cups allowed and he had the full story and then obviously there's been a massive reaction to this it has been a big topic of conversation over the last couple of days I'm delighted to say Irish Times columnist Jen Hogan is with us in studio and on the line we have uh, Port MacDonald, the GA development coach. You're both very welcome and you've both been um, talking about this. I might start with you, Jen. Um, you've written about this before. What What was the experience that you found from parents of kids uh, when the kids were involved in sport that was competitive or super competitive or mildly competitive at an underage level? Yeah, um, I mean, I got a huge response to a piece that I did uh, a few months ago talking about this and parents got in touch to say that their children had dropped out of sports I suppose altogether had felt completely excluded humiliated um, terribly upset on the sidelines and they were they were really concerned I suppose about keeping them involved in sport and they tra- some of them tried to talk to coaches some of them tried to talk to clubs it wasn't very well received I mean it wasn't just coming from clubs it was coming from parents sometimes on the sidelines too some of the some of the um, aggression and some of the negativity that the kids were experiencing but this whole idea of maybe token involvement as well having children kind of to- involved um, on a kind of token tokenistic level where they were got on the pitch for a couple of minutes a box was ticked and that was it and the child was supposed to be happy and it was because parents said it was more important to the coaches to win than to include all the children and get all the children involved and they were very much focused on the win forgetting that it was about children why do you think there was such a big response I suppose because so many people could relate to it and everybody had a story. There, even within families, there was lots of parents came back and they said they had maybe one child who was really good at sport and he or she got even got to leapfrog, you know, that, that practice of jumping over an age um, group, an age group and, and got, involved, got to the opportunity to do that versus a sibling who was left on the sidelines or who was humiliated because a big brother or a big sister came in and took a place uh, in the, on their team and they so didn't they get were, to play. they were on the two sides of the leapfrogging. Yeah, so they, they got to see it firsthand and when you see the kind of negativity that it has or that they're parents felt that they actually even had to pull their children out of sports for their own protection or you had kids like feel there was one parent wrote and she said that her son vomited the night before he was so distressed you know he had gone to all the training sessions but when match day came around it was much more important to win so the best what the coach termed to be the, the best players were put on instead he didn't get to play he still got his medal but that kind of thing of going into school the next day everybody knowing mm-hmm. he didn't play in spite of turning up and in spite of training and in spite of being part of the team and doing his absolute best it wasn't good enough for the coach the win was more important uh, Porik what, what's your um, understanding of, of why the Go Games exists within the GA uh, Good morning yeah the Go Games are probably one of the initiatives in the GA that I feel has worked very well uh, but probably in about 
12 to 15 years now in varying degrees in varying counties. I think Dublin was probably one of the early adopters of it. And basically the Go Games came in for a reason that up till then um, kids were playing in sort of adult structures and adult adults, you know, um, competition structures and adult game structures. Uh, for instance, you know, probably you were playing 15 aside at under 10, you were playing on a big pitch, you were playing in big goals with a big heavy size four football and go games sort of were brought in as a sort of child friendly and uh, with a couple of key principles like full participation, inclusion, um, child appropriate sized uh, pitches, child appropriate sized goals. So for instance, at under eight, you're playing seven aside on a small pitch that maybe 60 metres by 30 metres. Um, the Go Games footballs and slitters were brought in. So a uh, first touch football for under eight is a lot less threatening when you're hit with it than would say a size four. And again, I suppose a big change over the last 20, 25 years uh, would have been kids are starting sort of organised sport at a lot earlier age. So back when I was playing, uh, I think my first, game would have been at under 12 and now you have kids coming into clubs at four and five so we had to meet that demand with appropriate sized um, uh, structures and appropriate sized games for them. They're called goal games because everybody's supposed to get a go. Yeah so uh, no subs uh, everybody plays and as I said you know at under eight it's seven aside at under nine it can move up to eight to nine aside at under 11 it's uh, 11 aside at under 12 it's 13 aside and it's only then when you hit youth, which is under 13 and above, that you're into what we would class the sort of traditional GA, where uh, bigger pitches, 15 aside, and a size four ball, moving on to a size five ball later on than that. And then subs on the line and, um, you know, the competitive element sort of becomes uh, a little bit more uh, sort of focused on then. Uh, Morris Brosnan's got a good piece in the Examiner today where he talks about the annual report this year and how uh, in the annual report there was, it was kind of flagged that they were going to start taking action on this, that there had been uh, observances of the principles being breached. Is that your understanding, Park? Is that why we're seeing around the country that we're kind of backsliding a bit to more competitive structures? Um, I suppose uh, anecdotally here you hear sort of uh, of certain tournaments and certain blitzes where it is competitive and there is might have been cups on offer and knockout games and stuff like that. I'd also know the flip side of that where I've been involved in blitzes myself, which is purely participation. And I think at the end of the day, um, blitzes, I, I think that some people are reading into this that blitzes are gone or blitzes can't be held. I think participation blitzes uh can and will be held in this. It's just that there won't be knockouts, there won't be semi-finals, there won't be finals. That everybody goes, everybody gets the same amount of games. Everybody, it can be structured in a way that can, you know, you're playing against clubs or teams the same sort of size as yours or ability-wise. Um, so, for instance, when you do get to under twelve in Dublin, certainly it is graded. It's semi-graded at under eleven, where you have teams at A stream, B stream, C stream. And uh, you can you can have underage blitzes, and you can invite teams, uh, and you can have it targeted at a, at, a, at a B stream or a C stream, um, so that everybody is treated equal. And I think that's the big thing in go games; everybody's treated equal. It's, it's inclusive and it's it's full participation. 
Jen, this story is obviously, um, again, news this week because of Carol Kane's piece about the GA, but it's not specific to GA, is it? No, it's not specific to GA. And I actually spoke to parents even last night ahead of coming on today. And I, I did ask them, it is a big problem in soccer as well. That, that one is particularly mentioned. Rugby seem to get glowing reports for the most part. They seem to be very aware of inclusion. And most of the reports that came back on, on children involved in rugby, the parents had great things to say. But soccer, it is a bit, it's a big issue there. And I mean, anybody who's ever been on the sideline will see that. They'll see sometimes coaches completely forgetting that this is children that we're talking about, the, the same children who are on the side, you know, sideline always being subbed, even with the rolling subs, the same kid going on and off and, and it's it's something that, I mean parents are hugely aware of, but the children themselves are also hugely aware yeah, of. Yeah, like the children aren't taking They're, they're not stupid. No. And when you look at, at Norway, for example, 93% of children play sports um, in Norway and they have no competitive sports at all under the age of 13, which so and, and they've obviously a huge, or very successful um, elite athletes later in life and that tra- that moves over into adulthood where you have high participation in adults if we if we continue kind of down the road of kind of turning a blind eye to this kind of competition and children being excluded then we risk take we risk starving them I suppose and robbing them of the lifelong benefits that go hand in hand with sports but it isn't GAA but it is mostly GAA that I hear about it is mostly GAA that it comes back to it's usually the parents getting in touch saying that this kind of practice is, is going on it's supposed to be for the community everybody doesn't feel involved in the community it seems to depend really on on how good you are and it what, comes down to that Okay so like you, I realise you've given us um, facts and figures but from uh, for your opinion, yeah. why, why is it? What is it? What is it about the competition? What is it about the ego of these parents? Do you know, I think it's maybe they're reliving their youth. Maybe <laughs> they want, or they want to, they want to see themselves as this wonderful manager and you know, um, bask in the glory of success. And, and I mean, look, there is we're inherently, I suppose, there's a degree of competitiveness in us all. Everybody likes to win. Children like to win too, but but it's more about fun, and it should always be about fun. And the, the, I suppose the goal should always be about keeping as many included and as many playing for as long as possible. That should be the goal. But I think when it comes to grown-ups, they forget they're dealing with children. And I've seen. I mean, only last week, as a parent, I was on the sideline and I saw incredible behaviour I wasn't my coach I'll have to have to say our coach is deadly but um, I did see incredible behaviour on the sidelines and, I, and it was hard to believe it, that the, the coach was roaring at kids the way he was roaring at kids and like, it, it moves over then onto the pitch and you see it with the children they're picking up on this vibe so it's really it's a really important thing that it is reined in and that the parents do realise this is kids this is children it's about fun it's about keeping as many involved for as long as possible What's the answer on that then? I know we, we, we started a panel before Antonio Montero was in here who is involved in the silent sidelines initiative mm-hmm. where you literally parents can't say anything coaches can't say anything except for a little words of advice here and there like is that the, the only way forward do you reckon it's or bit, it's a bit depressing if you think you have I know, to go if that's that way yeah solution. if that's the only solution but if adult, if the adults can't behave there's merit in that you know if you're if you're encouraging a team along that's great as long as you know that you're remembering to encourage the whole team and there's not you know there's not blame being apportioned to a young child who misses a shot you know that we're not we're not seeing that sort of thing you'd like to think that kind of positive comments can come and if, if the adults can be grown up enough to remember to support properly but like what I witnessed last week and what parents are reporting to me that they're witnessing is they're, they're actually hearing abuse of players, uh, like kids, they're kids. And that's the thing that I can never get my head around. And it's long and I'm going to sidelines and on the side of pitches for years and years and years at this stage. And when I hear these stories coming in from parents, it's all so familiar. So the, the, the idea of silent sidelines, it's not appealing. It might not be like that kind of ban, you know, for parents. Mm. It might make them wise up, maybe if they introduced it for a short while and got parents to wise up a bit. And then we could get back to supporting our children as we should be able 
able to. I mean, this, these problems are being created by the grown-ups, not by the kids, except it does it does filter on then and the children pick up and they think this is an acceptable way to behave and maybe they're not so kind to their, their yeah. teammates. Yeah. Um, Parik, what, again, just from an, an instinct level, what's your view? And uh, Is it good that this has happened this week because actually it starts the conversation and we get to draw out people's views and opinions and, and you know, you can uh, calmly uh, have a conversation about it? Absolutely, yeah. I think it's uh, it's no harm that we, we, we look at structures and we look at why we do things and why things are in place. Um, I believe there's a big part of this is education. I think part of it is, is club philosophies and what clubs are about. And I believe most clubs are, are child-centred, child-friendly. I think most clubs want to keep as many players involved in their club and participating and bringing them all the way through into minor and into adulthood. Um, I think that can only be done by uh, stuff like the Go Games ethos and everybody getting a chance and everybody been developed. And the education piece is, uh, you know, understanding of development rates and understanding of stuff like relative age effect and understanding not every kid is developed by under 12. And, you know, in fact, in my experience, very few of them are, 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 are developed. There's, there's still a lot to do in their development in terms of technical, tactical, physical, mental, so, um, it, you know, education from a coach's point of view, uh, GA player Parkway came in there a couple of years ago and it was uh, a big change in terms of um, some of the player pathways that went before. This one had some core philosophies and included in that was, you know, quality coaching, connecting kids to them, to their teams, connecting kids to their clubs, being inclusive. And that tagline, I think somebody mentioned earlier there, the, as many as possible for as long as possible. And um, I think once, you know, clubs have a sound development philosophy, um, the one that jumps out, I think, that everybody would know from a GA point of view would be Nemo Rangers, where Nemo Rangers don't have it as a badge of honour that they're not interested in winning uh, underage competitions or underage leagues, that it's about development for them. It's about bringing as many kids through to minor and into adult. And I still think they're, they're you know, to have a philosophy like that in a club is and a very sort of public philosophy. I think is 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 an example for for a lot of clubs to follow. Is that the is that relative age effect report that you mentioned? Is that the I guess the decision making from the GA as to why it's under twelves for go games and not say under tens or under fourteens? Um, no, I don't think that's relative age effect. I think um, I think that's more that you know you have your. Um, I suppose there's a there's a big drop off uh, going from primary to secondary school, and I think that's one of the keys that. You know, to be, you know, in in, in primary school, uh, where you know, sort of that sort of corresponds to the goal games. Uh, there is, you know, a lot of work been done coming to one school. A lot of GA clubs going into the local schools. I think participation rates are very high. I think the fall off is after that when they go into youth sport and into uh, say secondary schools. And I think the challenge is, is when we get out of goal games and into that, how can we keep more kids involved at youth sport? Uh, all the way through into into adult. Um, I, I, I haven't seen the full text of the the um, the letter, but my understanding is that the whole point of this is like to try and put up guardrails so that everybody sticks within the guardrails by and large. But I don't think anybody says you can't have occasional one-off blitzes. It's the fact that it will become a regular thing where trophies and leagues and, you know, uh, inter-club rivalry becomes more important than actually getting more people to play more often. 
that's my understanding of, at least of a pork. I don't know if, if that's correct or not. I suppose I'm, I'm, I'm sort of more knowledgeable about the Dublin setup because I've been working in, in Dublin uh, GA circles for, for, for a while now. Um, I think by and large clubs are, are, are doing a very good job in terms of participation, in terms of, I think the Dublin, the Dublin leagues serve teams and, uh, and, and, and clubs very well. Um, you know, you've, you've, you've two codes. You have hurling football, lady football, camogie. It's week on, week off. But over the course of a year, I suppose you'd get somewhere between 20 to 25 games in total. And on top of that, you layer in the, the trips away and the challenge matches and these blitzes. So, um, I think, uh, the blitzes are fine once they're participation blitzes. Um, I do think by and large, um, I think, you know, unfortunately, this is, you know, this has come to a head at the moment because it's only one or two coaches, one or two, um, overexcited parents on a sideline that brought this to a head. And, uh, it's, it's no harm every now and again just to, just to stand back and examine it and maybe just re-emphasize what's important and why we're doing it and what the outcomes that we're looking for, which is, uh, as many kids as possible for as long as possible. Yeah, fair enough. Um, this story is not going to go away. No, it's not going to go away. I mean, like I said, I asked parents last night about what was happening or what their experience was just a few months on from from writing the last time, and it was the same huge response. Um, and yeah. parents getting in touch, but hopefully it'll mean. I mean, the fact that there's it's back in the public eye again. Hopefully it will mean that we will see the policy being followed and kids being involved and nobody feeling that they're always on the sideline and excluded and that they feel that they have a place within sports. All right, we'll leave it there. Jen Hogan and Port McDonald, thank you both very much for Pleasure. your uh, views this morning. You can get us on the YouTube comments, so youtube.com forward slash off the ball. You need to be subscribed to our channel if you want to leave a comment. Uh, you can also tweet us at off the ball AM. But at 8.46, I'm delighted to say John Duggan is with us. John, good morning to you. How are you? Morning, Jer and Shane. Some breaking news. Uh, Arna Slot is staying at Feyenoord. Uh, he has insisted that he will remain at the Rotterdam Club despite speculation linking him with a vacancy at Tottenham Hotspur. So Spurs seeking a permanent replacement, as we know, for Antonio Conte, who left the club in March. And Slot has ruled himself out of contention, uh, speaking to AD in the Netherlands and uh, saying his wishes to remain with Rotterdam, who he got it to the league title um, the first time in six years, just recently, 44-year-old. These are the quotes I've been hearing a lot of the rumours going around about other clubs interesting me, although I'm thankful my wish is to stay at Fine Order and continue working on what we created last year. There has not, and there has not been, transfer conversation. Yesterday's meeting was exclusively for an extension. All talks with the club have always been, only in that sense. I'm looking forward to next season with Fine Order to Tottenham. Nagelsmann has fallen through. Mercio Pochettino, the beloved Argentinian, is going to Chelsea as their new manager, and uh, we could be in a Nuno Espirito Santo situation now, where we're going around the uh, Magic Roundabout trying to find a manager for the next uh, season uh, it's going to be Nagelsmann now right Nagelsmann wanted too much money they went no you can't have that much money and uh, you know five weeks later they're going to be how much did you want Julian no that sounds like a good deal well done yeah crawling back which sounds like the Antonio Conte situation uh, because, or uh, like uh, and that's uh, what happened there and then eventually Conte came in and did well got them into the Champions League but then his relationship with the club broke down and uh, I just 
really feel at this stage that as wonderful business people that Enoch are in terms of building the bricks and mortar of that magnificent stadium and training ground and Spurs are doing well at youth level, it's time to give another owner a chance. It's time to give peace a chance uh, uh, and another owner to come in. And Shifty lad says Ruud van Nistelrooy has resigned having won two trophies. Could he be Spurs bound? Well, look, Shane Hannan, Jared Gilroy could be coming there at Spurs. Uh, <laughs> get the new suit, lovely kind of navy suit with a bit of white shirt. Um, Brent, Brendan Rogers. Once Leicester are relegated, we'll leave and surely... He's already gone. Oh, sorry, of course. Yeah. But is he not... He's in He's in the top five in terms of odds. Between Nagelsmann... I mean, Ryan Mason, it's too soon probably. Who could work with Daniel Levy? Who can work with Daniel Levy well, in, in a smooth basis? Nobody. Uh, uh, well, not since Pochettino, who was sacked after the Champions League final appearance. So we haven't seen Mourinho, who has done well now since he's left Spurs. Yeah, he's done all he's right. A, like he, he'd be bringing Roma into the Champions League very soon. Yeah. Um, so I could, uh, I, you could have to think that Antonio Conte would probably have success in his future. Um, and I really do believe that uh, the chairperson uh, needs to step back a bit and um, just allow the football side to be run in a football way and run the business as well as, as the business has been run. But ultimately, the business here is football. And Tottenham, are, with every single day, they're slipping further and further behind the rest of the Premier League giants. Who's uh, your pick as a Spurs fan? I don't. It doesn't matter. Um, I, I've just got to say, I'm so disillusioned, Shane, that... Um, <laughs> I was like that with Villa when they appointed David O'Leary. You're like, ah, oh, seriously, come on. <laughs> but, um, you know. It'll all be okay in the end. I just think, I think somebody progressive, like, like Vincent Company type, or you want, you want a, a Tottenham style Arteta. You want an Arteta, somebody who's been working with somebody like Pepe, as Arteta did for a few years, uh, who's progressive. Like, um, I pick, if you ask me who my pick, my dream pick would be Deserby. Yeah, I was going to say, there are other Roberto Deserbys out there, but maybe the likes of Arne Slot is one of them and just doesn't want the job so like Tom let Eric Ten Hag through their fingers yeah that's bad you know and just to me there's just if you watch the All or Nothing documentary there's just too much control from the board on the, on the manager's situation and the recruitment of Tottenham has been absolutely shocking in recent years yeah. and we see when you, we compare Everton, Man United and Spurs with Brentford and Brighton and actually I would, I would also include Manchester City in that the way they signed Alvarez for 15 million quid or 14 million quid um, recruitment and a good manager and letting the football side run itself and you can see Arsenal stability Tottenham when's the last time Tottenham were linked with anybody uh, as a player they're not linked with any players like today's papers Harry Kane United are going to make an early bid for him um, Ten Hag uh, one of the journalists said is obsessed with yeah him. it's interesting use of language isn't it I think mm. yeah uh, so um, well I've already said I thought Brendan Rodgers was still at Leicester hence is my uh, lack of recollection of, of him leaving the job but the Dean Smith Dean Smith, Dean Smith but didn't, um, Big no. Sam could be available oh, come on uh, he's only there on a temporary basis at least of course but, uh, t- t- Tottenham will not, not, never become a contender again until the club is sold to whoever it's the Qataris want to buy it for 2 billion because it is worth 2 billion now because uh, it is a magnificent it's probably the best stadiums in the world yeah. and it's in prime real estate in London home of the Heineken Champions Cup and, and well, that's it that's the go-karting next and year. Beyonce's doing five nights there in the next couple of weeks the Jags are playing a game there next year as well um, the Irish Jacksonville Jaguars of course um, yeah. So, we'll so see. all right. Anything yeah. else? Uh, well, we'll see if there's an announcement today around an NFL game in Dublin. I don't think they're going to announce it, but the fact that the game, the, there's a, uh, the launch is happening this morning. Uh, the Steelers are over. The owner is there. One of the legendary QBs who played here at the time that they played the Bears in the '80s is coming, and uh, the two main NFL executives uh, who are European based are over in Dublin today. Right and. Uh, 
it'd be if there's no game after this well then it's been some jolly come on <laughs> come on we've been getting teased now for about a decade I was talking to somebody saying that they don't expect an announcement of a fixture but um, maybe an intention to have a fixture so next year's fixtures have been announced already so is it a fixture the year after that we're getting but they, they need to be like saying there will be a fixture in the next three seasons Otherwise, it's like, come on, stick it down on paper. Come yeah. on, like you're just you're just coming to like sell more Steelers and Jags jerseys. Like, that's very elaborate, lads. You could have just you know sent a poster, bought some ads. <laughs> there better be a game at Croker. You heard it here first. Mm-hmm. So I will put those points to the owner of the Steelers later. Mm. Anyway, good stuff. All right, lads. Thanks, Sean. A fifty-two. Just turned A53. OTB AM with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon Night Edition is available now. Uh, a few quick um, comments for you. Pod says, I'm sick hearing about this. I just about kept my two daughters in GA after dealing with coaches who dropped them from players for a younger age group. Uh, Go Games have been um, looking after this for years, which is great. Uh, Mark says, you need to send coaches down to take a look at mini rugby. Incredib- incredibly well run and exclusive for every single kid. Uh, Kieran O'Connor says it's ironic that our own indigenous cultural community sports organisation is the most exclusionary, elitist, and hierarchical sports institution in the country. I just, uh, Kieran, I you know, uh, I know you're being slightly f- facetious with that, but actually, it is the GA themselves who are pointing out the problems within the GA, which is very rare in Irish life or Irish civil life, where you take on people in your own organisation and say this is wrong, we need to improve. And in fairness to them and we've put them through the ringer and plenty of different things here on the show over the years from Proposal B to the conflict of interest at the core of GA Go but on this issue it is the hierarchy who are saying we need to do better on this Uh, uh, once there's a trophy involved skills focus and player development stops says John Collins uh, talk to smaller clubs about losing players and they'll agree with goal games says Carl Keane Nigel Gallagher says an ultra competitive attitude at that age is bad for player development and will alienate what could be brilliant players in the future that's the thing mm. like these are the people who are going to be coaching teams in 15-20 years if you're alienating them and if you're not bringing them and their parents down week in week out then the pool gets smaller and the whole thing just is like self-defeating for what? for your ego? I mean what is wrong with people? I do have some sympathy for the for the underage coaches as well, not the ones that are uh, clearly out for the winning. But I mean, you say who'd be a referee, who'd be a coach if you you know you have so many young players, you have to get equal game time. So it's just impossible to keep everyone happy. Well, it's not in goal games. It's not in the goal games. Just have yeah. loads of games, and yeah. everybody just plays, and it doesn't matter. It takes the pressure off the coaches, I guess. It, it, well, the outcome doesn't matter. Like obviously, you're trying to get the players to get better, and you're trying to decide which group is the one that needs the most coaching and which skills. Um, and they do an incredible job. They do an incredible job mm. of uh, of juggling those things. But uh, going away from goal games is like, oh, we had this really good thing. It's too good for us. But they won't go away from it. I don't. They're absolutely not going no, away from no. it. Not they fought the tooth and nail to get to this point. And if there's any counties who aren't embracing it, then they should be named and shamed. Anyway, we need to move on because very difficult time for Wexford Hurling at the moment. I'm delighted to say Liam Griffin is with us. Liam, good morning to you. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Yeah, good. Um, what's your level of concern about Wexford Hurling at the moment? Um, yeah, great concern because for the simple reason... We're not doing well, and uh, at senior level now, it's a bit of it's a bit of contradiction because we've started to do really well at under twenty. We're the only county that's been in the last two Leinster finals in uh, in uh, under twenty hurling, losing to Kenny by a point last year, who went on to win the All Ireland, and then losing to Offaly this year. Two good teams, by the way, that we lost to, and uh, but the problem is that 
it's exactly the wrong time for the senior team to be uh, faltering because we need to get the point of entry at the top level because, uh, you know, that's important for young players being developed if we want to stay at the top because Rory O'Connor and these who came on first a few years ago, they're always been at the top level. So we really need to be at the top level and considering that under 20 squads or two squads that have got to that Leicester final, we need to be there for their, for their further development and for the development of Wexford Hurling. So it's it's a dangerous time at the moment in case we are, uh, uh, you know, relegated. That would be a big blow to the to the county, especially at the underage level. It seems like it's also come from left field in many ways. Like, you know, the the circumstances of the 17-point lead against Westmeath. Um, but it also feels like there's been an injury crisis this year and that that's... Look, maybe I'm wrong, right? But... Uh, I, I understand there's talk about the team not being as well conditioned as they need to be their second half performance has been consistently poor but at the same time I definitely fe- felt like they had a really progressive young manager who was you know uh, rising to the peak of his powers um, so I don't know what's, what's your instinct about is, is it just a weird sequence of events or is there something more fundamental at issue no it's a weird uh, no weird set of events but also, allied to that, we've lost Paddy Foley to Australia. And Paddy Foley was centre-back and he was a brilliant player. And last year, we beat Kilkenny in Nolan Park in the Championship. For the first time in our history, actually, beating them in, in Nolan Park. Uh, the nearest we got was back in 1951 or something, uh, to beat them in, in, uh, in, in, in Nolan Park. So he, he was gone. We lost Damien Rick. Uh, Lee Chin has been injured for a year and a half, and and I don't know what the story is with him. He's not he's not full he's not at full at full pelt, and we need him at full pelt. We've also Lee Ryan picked up a bad injury, so we have had a serious amount of injuries. But but having said that, we were walloping Westmeath at half half time. We were doing the same with Antrim. Now that's been forgotten about. That's just actually been forgotten about by those who wouldn't be at close. Uh, looking closely at Wexford Hurling because it, it, with about four minutes to go in the Antrim game, we were very well in front in, in, the, in, the, in the Antrim game, but it came, I think, to about four minutes to go or maybe slightly less. Antrim had, Antrim had got back to four points and only for our, James Murray made a good save on the goal. Uh, we would have been a point behind, uh, they, they would have been a point behind with about two minutes to go, I think, or thereabouts. And I believe that that, that momentum would have carried them over as well. So we were in mortal danger so what's wrong? What's wrong? Why is this happening? Well, we played excellent against against Antrim in the first half, really, really good. We played really, really good against the Westmeat, and then in the second half in both games we failed and we went we went went backwards. But the team the team just didn't respond in the second half. And you know yourselves from sport when the tide starts to come in on you in a match, it's bloody hard to get it out. So you could see when 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 Westmeat started to play really really well. And one good thing about the Westmeat thing that I would be very happy about from Westmeat's sake is that they're making good progress, and it's good to see that. And uh, we can't take from their victory. It was a great victory for them. But the one thing they started doing was playing direct hurling. And uh, I'm looking at the papers last week: 25 points for Tipperary, 25 points, you know. For Limerick, and you're, you're looking at all of the 20 points, and some of that stuff is totally boring. Not that those matches were boring, I'm not suggesting they were, but with all these points and so forth. But going direct seems to be gone out the window sometimes. It's all through the lines, through the lines, through the lines, through the lines, and that's not necessarily the best idea. So Westmead showed a way that you can win a match from behind by going direct and picking up every man in the place, and they deserve to win. So we are now in a crisis mode. 
Is it concerning as well, Liam, that there just seems to be no learning from, from one game to the next? Like even that, that Galway defeat, there was a lot of criticism about the, the persistent use of a sweeper and some of the tactics, especially in the second half. Then, of course, the Dublin game, a lot of wides for, for Wexford in that one. Even the win over Antrim that you mentioned, like they still conceded 125. So game to game, there just seem to be persistent issues that keep cropping up. Yeah, there are. And the other thing, too, is we missed two penalties in the championship so far. We missed a penalty the last day and we missed a penalty uh, in, in a previous game. So, yeah, th- those fundamentals and, and shooting, uh, you know, uh, 19 wides, I think, against Dublin. And, you know, we had wides, we've had wides. So that's, 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 that's true. But at the end of the day, I still think that the team, uh, the, the basis of that team is still very good. But at, at this time, I think we really do need to throw off the shackles and really hurl against uh, Kilkenny. Now, Kilkenny, we beat Kilkenny in Nolan Park last year in a terrific game. So we we have him now in our own pitch. We have him down in Wexford Park. So I know the players are a bit, uh, probably a bit fragile at this moment because of what's happened. But like, there's no reason why if we don't hurl our living best and play a good game plan, a good game plan, um, and if we can, if we can do that, I think we have a good chance of beating, beating Kilkenny. But if we don't knuckle down for the whole time, be brave, take it on, just take it on and make sure we're doing it for every minute of the game. I think that gives us a good chance. I really do think we have a good chance if they click on that form in that way. And I think they're quite capable of doing that. They did it in the first half. Uh, in the last two games and if they could keep that momentum up so that's surely not too big an ask but I think complacency sets in when you're playing teams that are considered to be lower uh, lower division than you you actually start to you know just amble along at times and it's very hard to get going but you can hopefully to get going for it and I think they will I think the lads in the hurling pod this week as well with ourselves Liam we're talking about Kilkenny maybe taking the game more seriously than, than people possibly think that the prospect of sending Wexford down might be a, a bit of motivation for some of those Kilkenny players. Do you expect that they will take that game seriously? Oh, I absolutely. absolutely. And I wouldn't want them to do that, Ness. This is, for, this is sport. You don't, you don't, uh, you don't give fellas favours. You've got to earn your right to, uh, to, to, win, to win the games. You've got to earn it. And I, I hope to come with their full game. Because uh, and I hope that we are, have our full game. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to be dependent on somebody else just uh, coasting in the game. But I don't think that Kenny will do that. I don't think they've ever done it. And fair juice to him. So that's it. Bring it on and Wexford should stand up and be counted. And hopefully that there will be to stand up and be counted. Because they have done it last year. That's that's the that's the go-to game to look at. We did it and we did it well. And so why not? So it's it's in the lap of the gods, but it's not mostly. It's in the lap of the players to give us 100%. They showed it in the last games. They can do it So for, for a half an hour for a half a game so why not now this is when Wexford needs them and I think they've got to get forget about everything else Tony this, this is this is this is a game for Wexford and it's a very very important game for Wexford and uh, you know whatever ever issues you have or whatever leave them behind or if management and players whatever with working together I don't know I'm not sure but listen give it everything be brave and go for it and give us a good game of hurling and let's see what happens and oh. I think we can do it over the last five or six years, it has always felt a little bit like the county board in Wexford were progressive and, and trying to make the right decisions about stuff. Um, and look, there's, there's difficulties in a, a county that is a dual county, essentially, um, where football is taken very seriously at club level. And I know there's a bit of controversy, residual controversy, about the speed at which the championships are run off. So it's one championship run off full and then the other one runs off. And that was a decision that the clubs made 
Um, is that the best thing for the intercounty senior hurling team? Uh, yes, it is. It is, and it isn't because it, it, it is the best in our circumstances. I'm in favour of both hurling and football, and uh, you know. But there's no there's no mercy for being uh, dual counties all over. There is no system that's going to help to make it better because unless we have a split season and that split season is there. Now, we were playing hurling one week football the next week uh, previous to this. So therefore, for football, you were training by playing hurling and for hurling, you were training by playing football. So like every second thing, that doesn't work. That just doesn't work. They're two totally different games. So that split was done. Uh, so that play, played hurling first and then played the football second. Now, we are a pure dual county and, and there is no reward for being a dual county. There's actually no reward for being a dual county anywhere across the way because it, it impinges with everything in terms of the amount of time you'll have this on the field and the amount of practice and all sorts that you get. And there's also... There's, there's also tension between hurling and football with some non-progressive people that seem to think they are progressive. Instead of finding a way, they just keep looking from one to the other on, on occasions. And that's part of being a dual county. But I think from our perspective, uh, I think that the championship itself has to be run off like that, unfortunately. But we have too many games in certain areas, of, the, of uh, even at inter-county level. There's some meaningless games being played. And we, we, we need to look at, at the entire Look at the GA needs to look at itself from the top to the very bottom, from annual congress and all the way all the way the game is the way the games are being run. That's just my opinion. Uh, I think there's an unbelievable amount of work that we should do and have to do because don't forget, the RSI report showed that a big dropout in Gaelic football and in hurling over the years. That was out in 2013. I would say that's become probably worse. 70% dropout in Gaelic football. Uh, at club level and a 60% dropout in hurling at club level that's a that's a crisis and it hasn't been fully addressed but like and we're and we're still maybe muddling a bit too much in relation to how we're trying to to create, create the intercounty game or or the new the new the new reality to deal with that so we've a lot of work to do to make it smoother for everybody but in the middle of all that you've got a dual county uh, dealing with all the complications and that certainly is a negative influence all right we'll leave it there for now Liam best of luck this weekend thanks for talking to us Thank you, thank you. It's Liam Griffin giving us some thoughts on the situation in Wexford. Some highlights for you on the Off The Wall Podcast Network today. Wednesday Night Rugby with Keith Wood and Fiona Hayes looking ahead to the Munster game this weekend. They also do some Leinster chat as well, if you can stick it anymore. The football show uh, from last night, of course, has uh, Dan McDonald talking about the Under-17 show. And Football Daily is your daily short fix of all the football world football news that you need to know across the world. You can follow us across our social channels and subscribe to the OTV Podcast Network. After the ad break, Andy Mittens, you had to be there. It's so unexpected. It's one of those you had to be there moments. You had to be there. It subsequently genuinely did change everything about my life. You had to be there. Right, I'm really looking forward to this. I'm delighted to say Andy Mitten is with us this week for You Had to Be There. Andy, good morning to you. How are you? Good morning. All good, thanks. This is very difficult. Um, a lot of people complain about like how how do I fit a whole life of watching sport into five things? How difficult was it for you? Very difficult. I'm probably watching 85 live football matches each season. Maybe 10 of them are excellent and maybe five of them are wow. And I've been doing that for... Nearly forty years. Wow! Okay. So, 
So there's a, there's a, there's a lot, of, games, lot of yeah. games, and then that's just only only one sport. Obviously, I, I'm watching a lot more football than, than other sports, and we're going to stick this one to football. But yeah, very very difficult. But I just I just chose ones which were varied and. Um, covered my life as a supporter but also as a, as a journalist I didn't just want to do five Man United ones for example um, I've probably watched Lionel Messi play live um, 200 times and I thought you know got to have him in but could, you could have picked five Messies and we would have been yeah okay fair enough <laughs> uh, that, that would have been allowed come here you mentioned other sports are you an avid watcher of other sports do you attend other sports I mean where the hell would you get the time to I'd say non-league football would be my other sport <laughs> and I struggled to get the time so I'd support a local team called Trafford in the part of Manchester where I'm from and I'm lucky if I get to two games per, per season uh, if I'm just going to a game and, and not working it, it's a real joy I watched Man United women the other night against Manchester City and was lucky to be there with my family and not to work and, and that was good I like I like live sporting events I, I, I'm very much now, if I was in Ireland and somebody said there's a game of, of Gaelic football or hurling, I would be absolutely up for going because it's not just about the the, the sport, it's about the sense of community and all these people being brought together. And I'm fascinated by, by stadiums, by, by fan culture, um, by what goes on outside the, the, the venues. I find myself looking at... These stadiums in Ireland with huge capacities because they're mostly standing and thinking that was in England. The capacity would be less than half the published figure in Ireland. So I'm a fan of everything about it, not just the the excellence of the, the elite athletes. Um, I might go to horse racing once a year, tennis once a year, just out of curiosity more than anything else. I'm, I'm not um, an expert by any stretch, but... I like going to live events. I think watching something on on a screen is very much second second best uh, for me. I'd rather watch a game of non-league football in person than watch a game of football whatever level on on, on a television. And I realise I'm in the minority there because most people consume sports through 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 a screen. When did you start United We Stand? I started in '89, so I was 15. But from the age of four. Uh, I was going to live football with my dad. All, all my family are footballers, and I'm from a big family, so I'm just about the only person in a big family who's not received money to play football. So watching my dad at Northwich Victoria or Hyde United, that was like my Maracanã or my Bernabeu. When, you, when you're six years old and you're basically being taken to give your mum a break on a Saturday afternoon, and me and my brother, who also became a footballer, We'd be climbing these stands and looking for streams behind the stands. We wouldn't actually be watching the game itself. We'd be bored after five minutes. And then when I was 13, I, I started going to Manchester United games by myself. My dad wouldn't take me because he, he was always playing. And I could hear Old Trafford from, from where I lived on the border of Stratford and Urmston. I used to deliver newspapers and I'd be out in the open and I could hear the roar of Old Trafford. It was that loud. I don't think you could hear that now because the stadium is much more enclosed. And it was always a United fan. I was from a big United family in a part of Manchester, which is mainly United. So the Manchester City Supporters Club in, in my part of Manchester 
is called Blues in Bandit Country. <laughs> and they're proper they're proper good football supporters, you know. They they followed City all their lives, but they are in the minority. So as soon as I was able to go, I'd get on the bus to Old Trafford. And the bus was packed with local kids and it's empty now. It's really sad that. And within two years I was going to away matches. And I started United We Stand because I felt that football fans were getting a rough deal. I thought the prices were too high. The facilities were terrible. We were all classed as hooligans. I thought, I'm not a hooligan. And then by 17, I was going to European away games and, and it never really stopped. I loved the travel. I loved being there. And all these years later, I think I've been to like 120 countries and seen Manchester United play in like 45 of them. It's not just new countries, it's new towns. It itched me for years that I'd never been to Cork. So I went to Cork for the Liam Miller game. Um, it annoys me that I've not been to the west coast uh, uh, of Ireland. I've not been to Donegal. I wrote Paddy Creran's book. It's all about Donegal. I've not been there. I've not been to Derry. These things annoy me. So maybe there's a bit of a, <laughs> I wouldn't say an addiction, because I think I'm pretty sensible and rational, but you know, the idea of, of watching sport in any of these places absolutely appeals to me. Yeah, your first one here, you got to cross Rotterdam off your list way back in 1991. This is a huge moment for Alex Ferguson's um, reputation and power and just a sense of like, okay, there's something, there's something really, really special brewing here, even though they have yet to get the monkey fully off their back. So this is Mark Hughes against Barcelona in Rotterdam in 1991, European Cup Winners' Cup Final. Huge deal. And Manchester United had a relatively easy run to the final. English clubs were allowed back into Europe for the first time after after the ban following the, the Heysel disaster. And finally in Rotterdam against Barcelona. Wow, managed by Johan Cruyff. I've never been so happy to get a ticket in my hand as that beautiful green counterfoil for that game because there was so many conflicting rumours. This was before the internet, so there was so much hearsay around fans would, wouldn't be allowed to travel, would, wouldn't be. You'd have to go officially, you'd have to go on the club coaches. So I booked to go independently on, on a, a coach which was advertised as an executive one and maybe when that coach was built in 1954 it was executive <laughs> but by 1991 not having a toilet on a coach to Holland was a, was a bit of an issue and there were a lot of very rum lads on that coach from Salford and I was 17 and they really looked after me we went to Amsterdam and they basically said don't go there don't go there and they indulged heavily and I was I was just like, wow, there's, a, there's another big world out there. <laughs> and it rained. Manchester was an exciting place. The music scene was good. The Manchester era, the fashion with the flares, just a great time to be alive. But in my school, they banned us from from going. So I got a mate of mine who helped with United We Stand to forge a letter from the mayor of Rotterdam saying I'd been invited. <laughs> I gave it to my headmaster and he, he congratulated me and said how proud he was of me. And uh, 11 other lads from my school went to Rotterdam. They all got suspended. I got, I got congratulated. <laughs> and did you feel any, any guilt when he was like, ah, oh, Andy, this is incredible. Well done. <laughs> we never thought you were going to amount to very much, but well done. Were you like, oh, uh, mildly guilty? I rang my mum from um, Dover on the way home. 
and she was crying. She said, you've been made head boy of the school. Wow. Just had a phone call. <laughs> and uh, a year earlier, I'd had to persuade the headmaster to let me do my A-levels because I'd, I'd messed up in my GCSEs because um, he said, you've got something else on your mind. And, of course, I, I had a print run. I had United We Stand to sell the following morning. <laughs> I had a business to run. You know, I was 16 years old. So, yeah, it was. Uh, I went back and... Um, that 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 month was brilliant. I passed my driving test that month, but Rotterdam in the rain, everyone singing "Sit Down" by James, and then Manchester United won the game. Barca were favourites. Barca were. It was the first year of the dream team, and they just won the Spanish league for the first time in several years. And subsequently, I've got to know quite a few of the lads who played, obviously from the United side, but also from the Barcelona side. And it was a really tight game. Manchester United wore a wonderful white kit, and there were some worries in that team, Ince and Robson and Young Lee Sharp, but Mark Hughes scored both goals, and he scored them in about in space for about seven minutes in the second half, I think 67th minute, and suddenly Manchester United are beating Barcelona 2-0, and wow, we've not just come for a trip here, we could actually win a trophy, and it was a huge deal, the Cup Winners' Cup, all the European Cups were, and I think they still should be. And Barca got an equaliser, pulled pulled the goal back, so it was 2-1, and it was really nervy the last few minutes because Barca attacked and attacked, and technically they had better players than Manchester United. But they held on, and it was fantastic, and it's still a major milestone in the life of a lot of Manchester United fans. And 30 years on, I managed to track down the referee, the travel organiser, the players, and just got told some incredible stories. Mick Hucknell gate crashed the after after game party and Brian McClare a bright man who's really into his music he said to Mick I'm, I'm not really into your stuff and I think you've peaked as an artist <laughs> in the following year Stars by Simply Red was the best selling album in the United Kingdom for two years on the bounce and Brian McClare said Mick had the good grace not to pull him up on that but just um, the fans behaving uh, the event passing without much trouble was news in itself because English football fans had a terrible reputation, not not without reason. So to go there, um, it helped that Manchester United won. It probably helped that it rained as well and maybe it helped that some of the Manchester United fans had indulged in whatever Amsterdam had to offer. <laughs> there was very little aggression and Barcelona fans were pretty straight and, you know, they, they, They'd seen the team lose and they were outnumbered by Manchester United fans. It also taught me the power of exaggeration from football fans. The numbers in Rotterdam have gone up by the year. And I think all fans do this. And I remember being a real anorak for for figures and thinking there's 24,000 Manchester United fans here. And I'm properly doing my sums, getting all the hard information and... It just goes up every year. I'm sure any Celtic fans who went to Seville against Porto will be able to relate to this. You're soon into six figures, and not soon after that, you're into seven figures, (laughs) and half a million and a million fans have gone there. And as soon as you contest it, you're like, um, no, no, there there are at least 500,000 of us there. There wasn't. 
The, uh, so I think all football fans are drawn to doing that, but it was a huge Manchester United following which crossed the channel. Yeah, it was unbelievable. Even one of those Marcus goals where he rounds the keeper uh, and smashes yeah. it out. I think even, was it Sergio Busquets' dad was the goalkeeper for Barcelona that night? It was Carlos Busquets. He was um, Barcelona's reserve goalkeeper and was a bit of a character in the Barcelona dressing room. One of the players said, if somebody stole your car radio, you would go to Carlos Busquets to get it back. He was a, a man from the barrio. And Barca were missing a couple of players and maybe their full strength team would have beaten Manchester United, but they didn't. And That's the glory of it. When Barca mm. fans tell me about their other victories, I, I sort of say, yeah, but what about Rotterdam? They go, never mind Rotterdam. <laughs> the um, next one is Roy Keane versus Juventus in Turin in 1999. Um, it's hard, I think, now for people to understand the level of tension that there would have been at that stage of the competition uh, given that the Holy Grail was the Champions League as it was the European Cup and Ferguson had made no secret of this um, and they'd been in it loads at that stage and there wasn't a guarantee that they were going to win it or that they were going to fulfil the destiny of him being one of the greatest managers in the history of the game that there would have been this kind of nagging doubt about his ability and the team's ability if they hadn't been able to get over the line and they're on the verge of going out I think maybe people like when you watch the game back knowing what happens at the end without the actual competitive tension on the day everything is kind of there's just an edge taken off everything but it was so edgy Juventus were the best team in the world in my opinion and had dominated at, at Old Trafford and were clear favourites to go through the second leg was in was in Deli Alpi which had been built for the 1990 uh, World Cup finals and I travelled there with all my mates as we did we went home and away with Manchester United and people have got a bit of a downer on Turin as a city I actually really really rate it but we didn't go there to look at the architecture we went to watch a game of football and the idea of Manchester United reaching a European Cup final was enough for me because as you say the team had been getting closer there had been some near misses Dortmund in 97 Monaco in 98 it was clearly a very very good team but it would take Roy Keane to get that team through so Juventus were 2-0 up two goals from Inzaghi in, inside 11 minutes so they're now leading 3-1 on, on aggregate and they're at home and because of a mix up with a ticket I found myself sat in the main stand not in the press box and I can't understand Italian, but they knew I wasn't Italian. And the people were just gesticulating to me as if to say, hard luck, you know, we're, we're brilliant with Juventus. They weren't being nasty. And they were brilliant. But then Keane had other ideas and scored after 24 minutes. And then Dwight York um, scored again after after 34 minutes. So at half time. I don't think I've ever felt like this watching a game of football in my life, including the final. I just thought, my local team have gone toe-to-toe -to -toe with Juventus and they're the better team and we're going through it because it was away goals. And I went downstairs to get something to eat because I was starving and there was nothing for sale apart from these coffees, which had like two millilitres of <laughs> coffee in them. And so the second half um, started, I was really envious that I wasn't with my friends on the other side of the stadium. Andy Cole made it 3-2. Manchester United were going to a European Cup final. And that was enough for me, not even winning the final, just reaching a final. And I was completely elated. And the, the, the same Italians that 
had been sympathetic to me were pretty gracious, actually, and were saying, this is an incredible team, incredible. And I got lulled into a false sense of security there because these were very middle-class Juventus fans, and I thought, oh, they all must be really nice people. Left the ground, went round behind the, the home end to try and get towards my mates in the away end, um, asked the steward directions. Someone heard my English voice. I heard the word inglese. And the next minute I was getting attacked. And this guy, I was basically where all the ultras were. And this man just flew at me and kicked me in, in the top of my, my, my thigh. And I said to the steward who was still there, um, Torino, as if, I mean, it, there's no logic to this. I'm trying to tell him that I'm, I'm, I'm Turin, but Torino are their rivals, aren't they? <laughs> and this steward said to me in Italian, which I understood perfectly, despite not speaking a word of it, don't care who you're saying you are, get out of here now. It's not safe <laughs> for you. <laughs> so I ran away on the big ramp towards where our hire car was. Gave up on the idea of, of seeing my friends in the away end. They were all celebrating, four and a half thousand Manchester United fans. And it seemed like a long time before they came back. It probably was an hour. Um, they came back to the car and we were hugging. We were going to Barcelona to watch Manchester United in a European Cup final. And then we drove to Genoa where we were staying. We got cheap flights because the cheap flights had started to flourish around that time. And I stepped out the car in Genoa, so it's probably two in the morning now, and just collapsed. You know, the adrenaline had, ca had, had carried me through, but I'd actually had a pretty bad kick to my leg and my leg wouldn't, wouldn't stand and I just fell on the floor. And it was all right. It was nothing serious, just, just badly bruised. So it was, it was the best performance I think I've ever seen. I've spoke to Roy Keane about this and he's just gone, I did all right. He didn't, I did all right. Spoke to Nicky Butt about it, and he said, you know, Roy's role's been overplayed by people like you. And I'm like, no, no. Spoke to Jesper Blomquist about it, who said, Roy, because Roy was sent, Roy, Roy's yellow card would meant that he missed the final. And Roy went mad at Jesper Blomquist, because Jesper passed him the ball, which led to the yellow card. And Roy didn't speak to him for seven weeks after. <laughs> I once told Roy Keane this, and he went, really? He didn't know where he went, hell of a player, Jesper. He was really nice when he was talking about Jesper. And Jesper said, it wasn't even a bad pass. I did nothing wrong, because suddenly I've got my captain blanking me. <laughs> so maybe that shows what, what Roy Keane was like. But Andy Cole and Dwight York were, were incredible that night. It was just, just a wonderful night to go to the best team in the world and... And to win three two. The Nicky Bob point, right? Because we rewatched this and did a show on it during COVID, and you can't tell how good the performance that Keane has from now, really, because they were going out against a team who had, as you say, were really essentially the best team in Europe, who had flukily lost the previous season, who had peak Zidane, who had Deschamps, who's uh, already just captain France to win the World Cup. As you say, Inzaghi, it's, it, does Del Piero come off the bench or does he start? They're just the Edgar Davids in the sides, they were so glamorous. And Manchester United had so often just failed. They just failed to do what we thought they were capable of doing in the competition at this stage. And it looked like 2-0 down that it was going to happen. But there's a, a magic about what Keane does over the next while, which is calmness 
in the maelstrom and then also bring the fire at the same time and gets gets them back in the game too obviously uh, you know with like a an untypical header um but from this distance, when you watch the game, you're like, oh, why does everybody rave about this so much? It's because the context is kind of yeah. stripped away when you watch it now on YouTube. Yeah, and, and that Juventus team, as you said, um, all them players uh, did play. Montero came off the bench. Some of the lads said he was the hardest man they, 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 they played against. Carlo Ancelotti was obviously the the, the manager. They, they were hardened and effective. I, I saw them completely destroy Manchester United in 96, even though it was only 1-0 and Alan Boxic um, ahead of. They were clear favourites. But, you know, if I look back at the Manchester United players now in that team, Schmeichel, Neville, Lewin, Johnson, Stam, Beckham, Book, Cole, Blomquist, Queen, York, Scholes on the bench, Sheringham on the bench, Solskjaer on the bench. Not a bad side either. No, a very, very good side. Next up, it's Rivaldo for Barcelona against Valencia in 2001. Is this the end of the season hat-trick? Yeah, so since 2001, I've divided my time between... Manchester and, and Barcelona and I'd been in Barcelona a month and got a ticket for the game not as a journalist so the following season I started going to Barcelona as a journalist and I, I got a game a ticket for this match and Barca were having a terrible season and they were up against Valencia and Valencia were above them in the league and and Barcelona needed to to beat Valencia to get into European football and Rivaldo scored a hat-trick and it wasn't just a hat-trick I think all three goals were from outside the area I mean any one of them would have been a contender for goal of the season but there was three of them and Valencia were a top top side this is a Valencia of the period who'd reached two Champions League finals who would win a double under um, Rafa Benitez, who were full of absolute household names. I could name more Valencia players from, from that team than, than than the current team. And I was in camp now on the second tier. I'm not a Barca fan. And I'm feeling the stadium wobbling. It hadn't even wobbled when Man United beat Bayern Munich there. It probably had done, but I just didn't feel it. So maybe because I was dispassionate, and the way that the goals were scored and the fact that there was a tangible prize at the end of it of, of European football, I remember thinking that's the best hat-trick I've, I've ever seen. And it wasn't just a hat-trick. It was really meant something. They needed to win the game against a very, very good team uh, to, to play in European football. And for Barca to not to be playing in Europe was was unheard of, but it was such a troubled time at the club. They went through a couple of club presidents, I remember one of them, Juan Gaspar, going out to face the music and it was just pure theatre, like 80,000 people waving a white hanky at him, going, go, 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 demission, demission. And it was a completely different type of fandom to one I've been been used to in, in, in England, watching Manchester United. It was totally different, different types of people and... The, the age of most Barca fans was, was much older. But then Rivaldo, because they still had so many spectacular individuals and always have had, sometimes they didn't gel and they hadn't gelled that season. Um, he, he scored the goals and it was just a real wow moment. I've never forgotten it. And I'm sure you would have enjoyed it watching it on TV, but just to be there yeah. 
and being experienced to, wow, everyone's eating peanuts around me. Well, I've never seen this before. Them little nuts you crack open. To be moving with the stand and to be in camp now, which I've become blasé about it because I've been so often, but it's the biggest stadium in Europe. It's the biggest stadium regularly staging live football matches in the world and this Sunday it will close um, for, for a couple of years so yeah that that was a real wow moment watching that game and I interviewed Rivaldo a couple of times and just shows how journalism change, changed we did him for the front cover of 442 magazine and I got told yeah you'll spend an afternoon with him I mean an afternoon now you've got PRs trying to shrink that time down to as little as possible 15 minutes to the point that yeah you know i've said to some of them i can't get a cover piece out of what i've just got off this person you know i'm talking major names as well so this this is just crap and they've gone yeah yeah we know so well it's not going on the cover and we've had to find some compromise where we go back and do more so to have four hours with rivaldo on the roof of the princess sophia hotel and i couldn't speak Spanish at the time or just learning so I needed a translator but I just thought that was normal trust me it's not normal <laughs> it's definitely not normal it, it's it's funny as well the the acrobatics of Rivaldo's goals the third goal I think was the overhead kick and I think he scored a similar not a similar but he scored an overhead kick against United in that 99 season in, in the new Camp as well and he just seems to hang in the air for an impossibly long duration of time mm-hmm yeah, no, the, goal, the goals were... I'm going to watch them again after this, and I'd advise anyone watching this to to do the same. Uh, he was the best player in the world for a couple of years, Rivaldo, and when they met him in person, he, 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 his legs were like bow leg because he'd suffered from mal- malnutrition as a kid. Um, and he, he was a really kindly person. And Barca all, always had those players. I remember soon after they'd... They made a big deal of Saviola. They thought he was going to be the best player oh, yeah. ever. And it just didn't work out for him. And you know, Barca weren't very good for, 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 for large periods. And they became became the norm for them just to be you know, one of the best teams in the world. Yeah. But and that when, bring, I, when I went to that game, they weren't. That brings us very nicely to uh, Messi. Of all the things that you could have picked, Andy, you've actually picked him against Manchester United. This is horrible, this. Um <laughs> It's horrible. I mean, you reach the European Cup final. Your team are the champions of England, Europe and the world. So I'd been there in Yokohama in December the previous month. Manchester United champions of the world. Just sat on the dock of the bay in Yokohama the next morning, listening to Radiohead's new album, watching these Japanese fishermen thinking, life ain't ever going to get any better than this. But Manchester United reach another Champions League final. And it's in Rome, it's in Olympico. It's a great place to go. Never forget some of my fellow Manchester United fans. Where do we go in Rome? Where do we go in Rome? It's one of the best cities in the world. Complaining. Didn't think it was that good. They ended up in a car park, some of them, on the outskirts of the city. What on earth are you doing? Well, I remember one of them said to me, I won't have a Scooby where to go in Rome. But, but what? <laughs> so... There were more Barca fans in the centre of Rome than Manchester United fans because too many of them didn't know where to go and there was, there was a drinks ban on. And that didn't bother the Catalans as much as the United fans who obviously 
needed their first quenching. And there were a couple of events on in satellite locations around Rome. And I remember doing Catalan radio and talking up Manchester United and a couple of people, journalists who I respect, going, you're going to get destroyed. Like, nah, nah. So you go to Rome. And I got my mum a ticket. My mum's an old Trafford girl and she supports United. And she probably goes to a game once a decade. So I got her a ticket. I just thought it would be wonderful for her, paid for her to go out to Rome. And um, I had to do my, my my work. I'm in the press box then. I'm a journalist. And the first nine minutes were fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> I nodded to my Catalan colleagues. Told you. <laughs> Ronaldo. <laughs> they were all at it and then Barca scored and absolutely dominated for 81 minutes and you saw players world-class players like Patrice Evra and Emmanuel Vidic really struggling and Barca were brilliant there, were a, there was a doubt about Andres Iniesta before the game uh, I'd, by this time I'd interviewed a lot of these guys I, I'd interviewed Messi several times I'd interviewed Messi when he was a reserve team player I remember a mate of mine who was um, captain of Barca's reserves who wanted to learn English and I wanted to improve my Spanish. We became really good mates and still are saying there's a lad coming through at training from Argentina called Lionel. He played today just said, I'm telling you as a journalist, keep an eye on him. He said, I absolutely smashed him today just to let him know that he's now a professional and I'm his captain. And that was Messi. And he scored that goal in Rome, a header. I mean, he, he was just a level above every single Manchester United player. United got the tactics wrong. Carlos Quiroz, um had had felt that Gerard Piquet, who'd been at Manchester United, could be turned, that he wasn't fast enough over the first two metres. So I'm getting very specific information by this point as a journalist, which I couldn't really do a lot with before the game, but it was, it was a real privilege to be, to be getting good level stuff I, I knew PK as well I knew him in Manchester but he'd obviously left and made the right decision long gone were the days when he said can you take me out, out around Manchester because I don't know anyone so now he's a European Cup winner and United's midfield didn't turn up you know I, I spoke to all of them since they would admit that there's a couple of lines in Fergie's book where he praises the energy of the the Barcelona players, which may be revisited in years to come, I don't know. But they deserve to win. I had United fans complaining to me that Barca fans didn't celebrate it as much as they should do, probably because they weren't all in drink. And there's one other observation I made. So I'm, I'm gutted. I go back to my hotel. I have like three hours sleep. And I've got to get a, a, a train out of Roma, Germany at six in the morning. And I got to the train station and it was full of Manchester United fans. And none of them had a clue what had gone on in the game they'd been at because there was no information. There was no internet. There was no internet on phones. And the people's knowledge of the game was so low, I was stunned. But by the end of the train journey to Florence, where there were a lot of cheap flights going back, Everyone knew everything about the game. They, they just traded off each other's opinions. And they were like, Etu's turn was fantastic, wasn't it? I'm like, you didn't know anything about the game apart from the score when I spoke to you a few hours ago. Yeah. Now at Camp Now, there is a Salah Roma. 
the Rome Lounge. I have to walk through that every Barcelona game I go to for work. It just feels like a punch in the face every single time. You, I think every football fan will be the same. Every rugby fan, any sports fan, you get oh, to yeah. the final and you lose. Yeah, well... Uh, and, you know, Europe, Messi was better than Ronaldo. European finals particularly. Um, Andy, we, we, we've we just got time to squeeze in your last one. You, this is very interesting. Of all of the things in all the world you could have picked, it's a defeat for Manchester City. <laughs> <laughs> You said context earlier on. I'll give you some context. I'm in Cologne. We're Man United. Europa League. COVID is at peak. I watched them beat Copenhagen. I get a message to say you've been rejected for accreditation for the next game against Sevilla. Sevilla, obviously, on the way to winning the Europa League. I'm in Cologne for eight days. It's day two. And I've been rejected. And I'm really down about life. And people think you've got this dream job. I can barely leave the hotel and I'm fuming and I get a call 10 minutes later from a rights holder, a TV station. Will you go to Lisbon for 11 days to cover the Champions League for TV? Good money, direct flights, bang, I'm in Lisbon. Call my wife, is it all right to be away because I've got a young family and I'm in Lisbon. And I'm covering Lyon against Manchester City. So gone from being so despondent to... My stars sort of aligning because I play football with the agent of Leon's manager. Put a call in, what's going on? He runs through every single player for me. The info's come direct from the manager, Rudy Garcia, who I didn't know, but I'd end up knowing really well. So I go into that stadium and I've got to talk about it on TV. I can talk about Manchester City. City are clear favourites. And Leon play... Three midfielders aged 19, 20 and 20. I'm like, you're going to get taken apart. And the feedback, feedback I'm getting from the manager is, yeah, we know, but we're going to give them a proper go. We are proud of what we've got. And I'm watching it thinking I'm, I'm going to have to speak to Guardiola after the game because I'm working for a rights holder. You know, I'm in this really privileged position where when you walk off the pitch, Someone from UEFA says, who would you like to speak to? And you're like, um, can I have Guardiola, please? And can I have you know, Kevin De Bruyne? This, you're seen as a journalist out of the other half lives. And you've got to look smart. You've got you know, to buy a shirt because we're doing it on, on TV. And Leon somehow held on. Not to, to scrape it. They won 3-1. And Cornette, who went to Burnley, put them ahead. So the leading 1-0 at half-time. And then De Bruyne equalised 69 minutes. So everyone's thinking, OK, City are going through the gears now. They absolutely dominated. Um, but Guimarães was fantastic in the middle. And I'm thinking, why is nobody signing this player? He's just brilliant. But he wasn't even the one who made the headlines. Um, Dembélé made them because he scored twice. Dembélé was the person I spoke to after the game because he was the headline. Manchester City were going out. And the Manchester United in me is like laughing, but I've also got to be a professional journalist. And I'm laughing because Leon had 33% of, of possession. They completed 184 passes. Manchester City completed 640 passes. It should just never have happened. There was one City fan in my hotel with his son who'd sneaked into Lisbon. Lovely guy, top, properly respected him and his mate. And 
I spoke to Guardiola after the game and I have to say he was incredibly magnanimous. I expected an emotional rant. He was very praiseworthy towards Leon and my opinion of him, which was extremely high as a footballer and then extremely low when he joined Manchester City, it went up a bit. But it was all about Leon and I spoke to the manager, Rudy Garcia, and he said, come and see me in Leon." So a few months later, I took a train from Manchester to Leon. He was under a lot of pressure. And I think he appreciated me taking a, a train. He gave me an incredible interview. And we were talking about Charles de Gaulle and Normandy. And he's like, why are you asking me about the Normandy beaches? I'm like, I'm allowed to ask you what I want. And we got on really well. And sometimes as a journalist, finally, you just spark with somebody. You, you just do. And I'm interviewing people every day, but I got on really well with Rudy Garcia. And it's a funny old world. A year later, he's going to be manager of Manchester United and he loses out to Ralph Rangnick. Oof. And we keep in touch throughout. And then a year after that, he becomes a manager of someone called Cristiano Ronaldo. <laughs> so would any of that have happened if I'd not had the call? If I'd not been rejected for a press pass in, in Cologne? These sliding doors moments mm. in life, in sport, Guimaraes, whatever happened to him. <laughs> a brilliant episode of You Had to Be There, Andy Mitten. Thanks so much, that was sensational. It's so unexpected. It's one of those you had to be there moments. You had to be there. It subsequently genuinely did change everything about my life. I had to be there. Some breaking football news this morning. Megan Connolly and Megan Walsh are leaving Brighton at the end of the season. Their contracts have uh, not been renewed. We'll bring you details on where they might end up on tomorrow's show. Uh, Shane and Johnny Ward are going to bring you Alan Quinlan live from South Africa ahead of uh, Munster's URC final. Shabana Hearn previews the final WSL weekend. David Brady's going to be on the line ahead of the weekend's football. And we'll have more reaction to Manchester United Chelsea as well as plenty more right now. We're playing yet with Dan McDonald talking to Joe. Have a terrific Thursday. OCB AM with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon Night Edition available now.